Thanks for downloading a 3CR podcast. 3CR is an independent community radio station based in Melbourne, Australia. We need your financial support to keep going. Go to www.3cr.org.au for more information and to donate online. Now stay tuned for your 3CR podcast. Well, good morning, everyone. You're tuned to Community Radio 3CR. Time is just after 7.30. And, of course, it's time for the 3CR Gardening Show. My name's Pam Vardy. First up, we've got to say a very good morning to Stephen Ryan from Dixonia Rare Plants. Good morning, Stephen. Good morning, Pam, and good morning, everybody out there. Lots Uh, of lovely rain. Yes, I was just going to say, I hope everybody's had a bit of rain. We've had not as much as some up our way, but it's dampening the ground down a bit. I actually did a bit of gardening the other day. There was an area that needed refurbishment, so mm-hmm. I decided I'd dig out some compost out of the compost heap and do some work in this bit of garden where a few things had sort of more or less faded out, and I thought I'll dig it all over, replant. I had a few things that I needed to put into the ground, um, and it was as dry as a plastered bone yes. underneath. It was just awful. Yes. Um, but at least I've now dug the ground over, so any moisture that's got onto it, will soak in, and particularly with all that yummy compost I yep. put down on it as well. Yep. So, uh, yeah, so I got a, a few plants that have been sitting around for a while, um, desperate for a home, into the ground. <laughs> and, of course, I'm working towards an opening. That's right. Might or might you not be close aware the garden I, scheme. Yeah, well, unfortunately, I, I don't take credit for closing <laughs> the garden scheme. Um, but my garden will be open on the very last weekend where it's actually, a, well, it'll run for another month afterwards, but that's just to tidy up the books and finalise yes, yes. things. But uh, our garden will be open on the last weekend in, in May, which will be the final opening weekend for Open Gardens Australia. So, yes, I'm trying to get a few things done. I mean, it's an odd time to have an opening because it's after the the autumn will be over. I mean, at the moment, there's still lots of lovely autumn leaves in the garden. But by the end of May, there won't be any autumn leaves left, surely. Um, And the late winter bulbs won't be flowering yet. The autumn bulbs will be over. The hellebores won't be in flower. Um, It's got to be about the lowest time in my garden would have right. to be towards the end of May. But that's actually part of the fun of it and the challenge of it because it'll all be about texture, shape, form. Exactly. You know, all those sorts of things. So it'll, be, it'll still be fun to do. Yep. And I'm just hoping everybody will come. I want this to be the biggest opening the we've big ever rahu. had. Yeah, look, if you're going to go out, you want to go out with a huge bang. You yes. don't want to go out with a whimper. Exactly. Um, so I want everybody to show up for that weekend um, uh, and um, – show people that we do care about garden opening because um, uh, as Pam and I and others were talking about just before the program started, it's not the end of garden opening. Uh, It will reinvent itself. There is already a South Australian body, there is a New South Wales body and the Victorian body is well underway. So we will have a state-based one. It'll be a different scheme. It may well run itself in a quite different way. It might have different sorts of openings. It might be more seasonally based. It might not have a, a, a yearly calendar. It certainly won't do the guidebook thing mm. because really a guidebook is all very well, but it then you've got this huge lead-in time between actually starting it and having openings so it can be 18 months two years before you have your opening. Most people tend to go online to look these things up anyway. Exactly so you know it'll be a website based thing which means it gives you the opportunity to change things fairly quickly if you have to. Exactly. You know if somebody has to pull out or a new garden comes on board that you want to make use of. Yep. You can move on it yep. in, a, in a hurry so that things can be a little more proactive. Um, so I think it'll be really good. I've been to a couple of meetings. Um, uh, we've already got a bit of sponsorship happening. Um, there's an incorporated body name sorted, so we're that far. Business plans and things are being drawn up and 
Well, it looks like it's all go. So there will be a Victorian-based open gardens scheme, probably called Open Gardens Victoria, which makes sense. It does. Um, and we'll see what all the different states have to do and what they're, how they're going to deal with it. And really, if you really look at it rationally, probably always should have been kept as a state-based mm. thing. It, part of its big problem was that it became top-heavy having That's to right. try and cover the whole country. That's right. Um, and, of course, there's some of the smaller states that became something of a noose for the organisation. They were a liability. Well, they were. I mean, it, some yeah. of the smaller states where you don't have the population, it still costs the same amount to open a garden. Mm. So some of the smaller states were being subsidised by those that were making money, and so that sort of doesn't help either. Yep. So, yeah, so it's it's over, basically. Um, uh, and as I said, I'd like my opening to be a really good one. Um, and uh, But something else will have uh, come out of this, which hopefully will go on for the next 20 or 30 years, opening gardens for for us in the in the public who love to see other people's efforts. well there are so many garden opener uh, um, garden owners who really have enjoyed being part of the of the whole scheme oh. and they wanted to see something continue they want to be able to go on opening their gardens yeah. they they love it and 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 the visitors to the gardens also love it so it would do. have been a shame to just have it mm. die to nothing and of course the thing about opening underneath the umbrella of a major scheme like that is that you've got all your insurance covered yeah. um, you've got a pr machine that the average home gardener can't do on their own yes uh, help with publicity, printing, all those sorts of things come into it. And um, so it's a lot easier if you can open under a scheme. And and insurance is really a big thing that people sort of don't think to think about. That's but right. But if you're charging people to come into your garden, generally speaking, your householder insurance policy doesn't cover you. That's and right. And so if you're opening a garden to raise funds, I believe if it's for a charity and you don't keep the money, you're fine. But if you're keeping any of the finances that come out of your opening, uh, mm. then you could have some liability that you weren't aware of. So, mm. you know, insurance is certainly one of the big things. And it was always one of the big expenses in uh, Open Gardens Australia was the insurance cover yep. to cover all those gardens nationwide. Um, but it's a really vital and important part of what's offered. Mm. So, you know, it will certainly be part of the new scheme, I'm sure. Mm. So so anyhow, so things are moving on. So, That's wonderful. Yes, so everybody's got to put the last weekend in, in May aside. Yes. Uh, to come up to Macedon um, and um, come and see me, have a walk around the garden and, um, yeah, we'll, we'll all have a, a sort of a, a, a bittersweet uh, weekend thinking about the many, many years of the scheme. And it's interesting because I feel like I've been there for the whole thing because when the Victorian Garden Scheme started way back when in the 1980s, uh, I remember John Patrick and I discussing the first um, guidebook that was going to come out and some of the Macedon Ranges gardens that could possibly go into it. So I had an impact right at the very beginning and then I've been a selector, I've been on the Victorian Committee and this will be my 35th opening Wow! for the scheme. Which is pretty impressive. Even I have to say, I was quite surprised when I found out how many openings. <laughs> you I'd counted had. them up. <laughs> yeah, well, I didn't count them yeah. up. I had no idea how often I'd opened. Yeah. Uh, and I actually rang the office one day to get some info because I was sort of doing some writing on something or another. And I said, um, you know, how many openings have I had? So Margie Petsky went back through the the computer and came up with the figure of thirty five, and I nearly dropped. I couldn't believe I've been <laughs> open so often. So there you go. Fantastic. We have to say a very good morning to Millie Ross. Good morning, Millie. Morning, Pam. Morning, Stephen. That's a that's an honour. That's a lovely thing to be able to to be part of this the last sort of yeah. official. I mean, it'll happen again, but oh, yeah, yeah, I think yeah. everyone should get in the car. But um, mm. yes, lovely to see some rain. I, I'm I'm going to talk a little bit today. I've been 
out doing all sorts of things to do with fungi and uh, I've been looking for fungi quite a lot over the last month mm-hmm. um, based on, on sort of my experience of the weather patterns last year and there's been not, not too much about uh, in, in a lot of the forests I've been looking. So this rain is, um, you know, yesterday I was doing a, a fungal workshop uh, indoors and everyone was just looking outside going, great. You know, all these people <laughs> who were interested in fungi were, were very, very um, happy to see the rain falling. But, uh, yeah, look, finally, hopefully it doesn't drop to be too cold too quickly. I'm a bit nervous yes. about that because, mm. um, you know, we haven't had that kind of warm soil, warm weather, rainy With period. Yeah, yes. so hopefully we get a couple of weeks of rain yeah. and, a, and a bit of warmth. I think we're looking mm. at 20 degrees sometime this week. Okay. So. Well, I saw um, my first um, Amanitas up the other day, the red ones with the white spots on. Yes, uh, I think I've got a death cap sitting in front of me. I just thought oh, I'd quickly goody. ID that. That's what I brought in. <laughs> we're going to do a taste test later, on. No. <laughs> no, not with that one. But, um, look, I mean, there are a lot of fungi around and um, it was interesting talking to people because I was in Trentham and so people had come from everywhere from sort of Geelong um, to a lot of people from the Macedon region and a few other spots and um, it was really interesting that, uh, you know, the people that live sort of closer to Macedon say they, mm. they usually get an earlier flush because it's just wetter up there. Yeah. yeah. Um, and whereas all the, the people in Western Vicar, you know, over Easter I was camped all the way down um, near Nelson, which is sort of on the South Australian border there. It's like the, it's the, uh, you know, it's the Australian centre of pine plantations. So, of course, mm. I sort of jumped out of the car and had a bit of a look and there was just nothing happening, you know. It was just yep. so dry down there. So um, it has been a really dry season compared to last year. Mm. Um, but, yeah, look, just a, a fascinating thing um, to do and to learn about, you know, mm. as gardeners, I think, um, and, you know, I know this is changing, but, you know, whether it be insects or fung- fungi, most gardeners, when they think of those two things, the question they'll ring up and ask is, I've got this thing, how do I get rid of it? Mm. Or I can see this mushroom, how do I get rid of it? Mm. And um, and the answer is usually don't. Exactly. <laughs> because uh, exactly. Yeah. even if it is <clears throat> something like, the, you know, I have got, what I think is the death cap mushroom, which is really poisonous mushroom. It's very common in Australia. It was introduced quite a long time ago. It usually grows in association with oaks and other things. To, to be honest, I can't even think what was growing around it. It was just on a roadside. I just pulled over and, and grabbed it on the way home last night. So, um, you know, it, it is a common mushroom, but all of these mushrooms are doing things for our plants. Mm. Um, and, you know, and, they I mean, are the, the result the of... The death cap <coughs> might be poisonous, but it is only poisonous if you consume it. Only if, if you, you leave, consume it, yeah. Yes, if you leave it alone, it doesn't do any harm. And the interesting thing, so some, you know, we can talk about this more later, but uh, I was out with um, uh, an incredible ecologist. She lives half of her year in Switzerland and half of her year here. And I was a ecologist called Alison Puglio, who's who's really moved into studying fungi over the last 15 years. And um, she, you know, she was sort of making that point too, that um, she can very rarely photograph this mushroom in the forest when it hasn't been eaten by something. You know, every time she photographs it, something's eaten it. So, mm. you know, it's like, um, you know, grapes for dogs or macadamia nuts for dogs. You know, poisoning is, is very species-specific. Uh, it's not really that, ta- you know, tangible. You can't necessarily – I mean, this one is very poisonous, but she says often <clears throat> on the poisons listings are quite edible mushrooms. And, you know, <clears throat> is it because of a compound that people mm. eat too much? Is it because they're allergic? You know, all of these things. Mm. But I guess, you know, and it's funny because people just go straight to wanting to eat these when they're talking about fungi. But the role of fungi in our landscape is uh, far more important than us. Oh, yes. And, you know, something like 97% of plant species have an association with fungi. Mm. And without it, their roots wouldn't operate. They wouldn't access soil and nutrients. Um, You know, fungi that grow on dead wood, well, nothing else can break down lignum. So nothing else can turn a tree Mm. that once lived back into soil. Yeah. 
things to grow into yep. it. And um, the way we look at species being in decline or species being under threat in isolation is, you know, we really have to change our thinking on that. And particularly, I know we talk about, you know, native orchid species. Mm. You know, there isn't a native, you know, terrestrial orchid that doesn't need a fungus to basically hop on into the tuber to help it germinate. And um, you can take all those orchids you like and put them in pots mm. and put them in a greenhouse. But the fact is, if you take away the soil that they're growing in and therefore the fungal associations that they have, you can't save save those orchid species. But I'm looking at I'm looking at the guest to my left, who I want you to introduce <laughs> so she can join in the conversation. Because <laughs> yes, I know she's nodding. got opinions she's, here. She's jumping up and down with anticipation. Good morning, AB. Oh, good morning, Pam, <laughs> Millie and Stephen and everyone else. Yes, lovely to be here. And I'm just actually fascinated by what Millie's saying. You have got a lot of really great information. I don't know a lot about fungi. I am allergic to mushrooms, so if I <sighs> eat anything, I, I won't kill over and die, but I will vomit violently for a few days. Well, well that's an interesting thing. So Alison was saying that all mushrooms contain chitin, which I think is the same compound that you find in some shellfish. Mm. Um, and, you know, common allergy sort of. And she said to, you know, by the end, a lot of people were really asking a lot of questions about edibility. And you can see as an ecologist, she's sort of humouring it, but she's tiring of it a little bit yeah. towards the end of the day. Because it's not the important thing because in Because for her, you know, she did this fantastic demonstration that I said to her, I'm stealing this, I'm sure other people have stolen it, to try and explain the capacity of a fungi to extend the root system of a plant. She just had a piece of PVC pipe about you know 40 centimetres long and she said you know that's like your root it's hollow it can take up moisture and then she had this network of stockings that she's tied together that she starts handing out and they just get pulled all around the room and so then from this little root you've got this network of um, mm. of, of the stocking that's mm. all over the place it's round people it's all over the place and it's basically you know it can extend the capacity of a root to function in ways we can't even imagine and 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 so you know, I mean, mushrooms are just the fruiting body of fungi, yes. and um, some of them we never see. I mean, the the, uh, the truffles. Um, we were talking a little bit about truffles. All eucalypts have truffles growing on them. Mm. I um, found some native tr- truffles yeah. a couple of years ago. Well, mm. and and they are, you know, they're very aromatic, and they're mm. very aromatic because they are a major food source of batongs, bush rats, bilbies, bandicoots. All of these animals at this time of the year would almost be sourcing a hundred percent of their diet from digging these things up and eating these I hope there's fungi. none of those bilbies out there that have a fungi allergy. Been the fungi trouble. allergy. Oh, <laughs> yeah. Kevin, I've just been on the yeah. 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 But, I mean, it is this, you know, this very intricate thing. And, and I guess for me as a gardener and a gardener who's interested in the bigger picture, mm. um, it was just a fascinating thing. And, and look, Alison is, is leading um, she fungal forays where you walk through the forest and we did that in Wombat Gully. She's put together a great um, – Wombat State Forest, pardon me – She's done a great fold-out um, fungi of the Wombat State Forest, uh, which I'm sure you can get through the Wombat State um, Forest Land Care Group or the, the care group that's um, there. And, and, you know, they're all the really obvious fungi, not mm. the little the LBMs. Like, you know, like when you go birding and there's the little brown birds, the yeah. LBBs, and you yeah. go, oh, no, I don't know that's what that a, is. Yeah, it's another LBM. <laughs> there's lots of LBMs as well. She <laughs> said there's no LBMs on that, that list. It's just the, the most the, the, the common um, fungi. But um, she is leading tours and, and things all around Victoria but I think they're completely booked up and um, every year um, you've got to get in pretty early when mm. she comes back to Australia uh, because she's doing one in mm. Macedon uh, on Friday. She's all over the place mm. um, in, in uh, Victoria and Tasmania. Well, I was going to say that uh, traditionally um, we always associate May with fungi. Yes. Um, and there are other people who do, um, who do lead 
um, mushroom forays, um, you know, during May. So keep a look at. Yeah, absolutely. I know um, a, a friend of mine, Cameron Russell, always yes, leads Cam edible, always does a few. edible mushroom tours down um, on the Mornington on, Peninsula yes. and you actually get some mushroom soup. So yes. it's a, a different approach. But there's like usually one some one. in the Otways as well. Absolutely. Yeah. So, I mean, there's, I guess there, there's this resurgence in interest in wild mushrooms and, and you know, Alison did say, look, the, the more I've learnt over 20 years, the less I eat. You know, and, um, you know, even some really quite good edibles they have, she says, they've all got doppelgangers. Um, I mean, I collect pine mushrooms really confidently uh, last here. year. Like, and, you know, they're, I guess they're a good mushroom to start with, but there is um, one particular mushroom that does look very much like it and is quite poisonous. So if you're not uh, botanically mm. eyed, like I, I'm, I, whenever I take anyone out, I usually take another gardener because I know if I say that's what you're looking for, you know, there's, these, these are characteristics, then um, you know they're going to have that ability to distinguish between this green leaf and this green leaf. Yes. You know, it's, yes. that, it's that sort of skill. But, um, you know, I guess it's all about really um, just connecting with how amazing this world is and also how little we know about it. Mm. I mean, we have one mycologist at the Royal Botanic Gardens trying to do this for the whole country. Um, and we don't know what the functions are over the ecology uh, and, and, you know, what we're losing because, we, you know, it's like plant species that were never recorded. We never know they went, you know. Exactly. And, and fungi gone, is gone. the same thing. So, mm. and, you know, basic things like compacting soil or um, changing the pH of a soil or, you know, using a soil drench or any of those things can all affect um, these of organisms. Course. But, look, I'd highly recommend going for, you know, go have lunch in Trentham, go for a walk in the Wombat State Forest. Um, there's ghost fungus that glow in the dark are very common there you know we found one when we went in the bush and and I mean that is just a how do you even explain how amazing that is you know she she told a story of being a little girl and having so many in her tent in the grampians that she would read her book by the ghost fungus you know (laughs) and the other one sounds a bit harry potterish to me but there you go (laughs) the other incredible fungi you know that uh that she brought in and i kicked myself for not grabbing one to to bring down that was found in in the forest around macedon was Mm -hmm. um a cordyceps and i i'd seen these because i'd seen a documentary about these in the himalayas where the collection of them is becoming quite problematic yeah but um the cordyceps Well, really valuable, and mm. therefore, you know, a lot of people are out collecting them. But the cordyceps is a fungus that actually infects a live caterpillar, and the caterpillar is burrowed in the soil. And in this case, it's the caterpillar of the, I think it's called the goat moth, and um, tends to occur underneath. So that moth, that larvae, will burrow under a, a few different species of acacia. So there you go. You know where you're going to go looking for it. There's your association, your fungal association, mm. and the and the uh, fungi actually infects the caterpillar, kills it uses up all its nutrients and then the fruiting body actually sort of extends out of the head of the caterpillar and grows sort of 20 or 30 centimetres and, and your mushroom comes up from the soil and she'd actually extracted a few of these so you get these incredible long, you know, club sort of form mushroom running down a just a, a white thread down into a, a sort of, you know, petrified caterpillar down wow. the bottom of it. I have photos but, uh, you know, it's just... <laughs> You know, what is going on under the ground yes. is, is just as just as diverse as yes. what's going on on top. How incredible. And that does raise the issue that people see when they're gardening, they think about fungicides as being comparatively benign. So they're out oh. there spraying fungicides around, you know, to kill black spot and mildew yeah. and yes. whatever else. But a lot of those fungicides are not particularly specific about what they kill in fungi. Mm. So they'll kill the goodies and the baddies too. Oh, yes. Yeah. So you do have to be aware that, you know, putting any of those things into your garden can have a disbalancing effect on the good and the bad organisms. As can as can fertilisers. And mm. that was um, anecdotally we were talking about field mushrooms and um, the yellow stainers. So, you know, they're two different species of the same. They're agaricus genus of mushroom and that the yellow stainer is a much more vigorous mushroom. 
mushroom mm. and well fungi, um, and that it's sort of out competing um, the field mushroom mm. species more and more and more. But she said that anecdotally, um, speaking to farmers over the last 15, 20 years, they said as soon as they superphosphate a paddock, the field mushroom's gone. Mm. You'll yep. never see it again. And yep. it's just that that nutrient load um, that that changes, you know, and probably there's something that changes in the pH there mm. too. But mm. so, you know, any changes that you make to soil and, you know, I know we've talked about this over the years that planting indigenous plants is hard if you don't have indigenous soil, you know. Yes. You, you, you know, that that if you, you need to pull that weed load out, you need to put that nutrient mm. load out to, to re-establish the local plants sometimes because because that is so changed. But I guess the, the key thing that, you know, this is something that I've been exploring for quite a few years now but you know and I often say um, when you're building habitat gardens that the best thing you can do is put a dead tree in and uh, you know we've done this in gardens I'll poke a big dead branch into the ground and before plants even go in the ground and suddenly you find you've got birds visiting because they can sort of prop and have a bit of a look before they come down to the garden but I think it's also as important to have dead wood on the ground mm. and even as I drove up to Trentham the amount of guys with chainsaws and trailers in there taking out firewood and you know I, I, I respect that people need to take firewood for, you know to keep warm through the winter but um, all I I could see with those chainsaws going was them taking away habitat mm. and taking away that leaf litter layer and taking away that dead wood. And mm. um, it's it's really important that where we can, um, that we leave wood on the ground and that we leave wood on the ground in our gardens and we start to change our understanding of that aesthetic. I mean, you, you would probably experience that on your no-soil garden almost. Well, I mean, we do. Um, surrounding the house, there's really... A, I've incorporated logs and everything into the garden more for habitat than anything else. But, um, you know, very close to the house, you know, within 20 metres or so, of course, we're in bushland. So there's, you know, numerous logs and fallen branches and in all different stages of composition and, you know, some with um, fungi all over them and, you know, especially this time of year and we're in a bit of a gully so it's quite wet there. Um, but, yeah, I, I definitely agree. You know, you'd, we uh, we collect firewood, but we only collect firewood that we know is not going to be habitat. Um, and, you know, there, there are certain parameters that we stick to for firewood collecting, But and you'd like to think that other people would stick to those as well. But Most yeah, other people don't no. even understand the concept. So no. They're not even no. going to consider so what is, that. What are some of the parameters wood. that you... Well, basically, you, you would only collect solid wood. Yeah. for starters, because it's not going to decompose and, and then become habitat for something or another. Um, and um, so, I mean, I suppose that's one of the main things. And then you look at what you're collecting, like if we're collecting, um, you know, Kunzia or eucalypts, you know, um, obviously that has different burn rates. And then, you know, whether you collect, leave it there for a year and let it dry out for a bit or mm. chop it up and, uh, you know, bring it home and let it dry out at home. So they're different things that we yeah, The wood pile makes a good little habitat too, doesn't oh, it? Oh, Absolutely. yeah. <laughs> yeah. In, oh. Including, like, right a big, your arm. Yeah. including a big tiger snake in my situation. Oh. <laughs> well, the last He's thing that left out of mine was years. actually just a rat <laughs> that had made a nest inside <laughs> the wood pile. Uh, nice, neat little nest. I might add too. Yeah. Uh, but yes, I was sort of picking up wood without sort of paying a great deal of attention. You know, you just sort of get into this sort of swing of things. Yes. And so I really wasn't paying any attention. <laughs> Suddenly this thing leapt out at me. Well, you can still squeal like a girl, I suppose, if you have to. <laughs> Gave you a hell of a start. It is. It's the fright, isn't yeah. it? It's, it's a fright. Yeah, yeah. 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 Uh, exactly. Yeah. Yes. Yeah. And it could have been the snake. I mean, the, the trouble we have is we've got water, we've got chickens, we've got firewood. 
Uh, we've got all the things that would attract, attract, attract snakes. snakes. Mm, so yes. they've got to be around our place somewhere. Of course. Um, and we just don't tend to see them on the property. When we take the dog for a walk, we sometimes will see a snake out on the paths mm. and things. Yes. But they've got to be around our garden. I'm of sure they're they somewhere. Yep. Mm. Well, in my case, I've got a creek at the bottom of the garden mm. and, and I'm sure they they live there and, mm. you know. But, yeah, we've had this resident one in the wood pile for years now. <laughs> <laughs> but uh, we know he's there. Yeah. You know, so that's fine. We're always keeping a lookout. But yeah. And they tend to disappear quickly they, if they he, know you're look, coming. He disappears very quickly. We don't disturb him. He doesn't disturb us. You know, it's it's fine. The only thing I've got to watch is that my dog doesn't oh. see him and because mm. being a terrier, he would instantly be in for the kill. And... That's my job. <laughs> yes. 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 <laughs> oh, 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 I'm on. To kill. <laughs> yeah, let's go. Yeah. Uh, dear. But anyway, yes. Okay, I should get to a couple of community announcements. Oh, yes. Um, and uh, we've been talking Open Gardens Australia. There is a garden open today, so I should quickly give it a mention. This is a garden up at Romsey, which is actually opening for the first time this weekend. So um, so I do hope they get a few people going up to have a look and give them an encouragement. But it also sounds like a really interesting garden. It's called Crooked Road Estate. Um, now, it boasts a huge organic vegetable garden that includes 100 fruit trees. It also features 50 varieties of palms, yeah, which is... Um, and just think about where we're talking about. And Romsey, they've got a coll- collection incredible. of palms. Incredible. Yeah. Palms are great. Yeah, yes. It's, but it's so bizarre. You just don't expect in, a, in, in an area like Romsey where you mm. get frosts and all that sort of stuff. You think of palms and pina coladas, not Romsey. Exactly. <laughs> and, but, you know, yeah, so they are. They're mad keen plant collectors. Yes, so, so they've got some... lots of rare and endangered plants. Um, they've got magnolias, maples, oaks, Australian natives. It's all spread over one acre. And uh, it's also the home of Ben-Hur and Colossus Olives. So there's going to be olive oil for sale as well. So It's very good olive oil too. I've tried it. <laughs> okay, there you go. Um, they're going to have guided walks at 11 o'clock this morning and 2 o'clock this afternoon. So definitely worth braving the uh, the cold rug up, put on a, a you know, something that's that's waterproof and definitely head out. Now it's at 126 Crooked Road in Romsey, hence it's called Crooked Road Estate. Um, so 126 Crooked Road in Romsey, open at 10 o'clock this morning through to 4.30 this afternoon and the usual entry fee of $8 with children under 18 admitted free. Now, uh, also on today, uh, the Australian Plant Society Mornington Peninsula Group have got a plant sale on, 9.30 through to 4 now, this is at Sea Winds, which is Perv's Road at Arthur's Seat. And uh, as I say, that's running from 9.30 till 4 o'clock today. Now, coming up this week, um, on Wednesday, uh, the next meeting of the Friends of Burnley Gardens is taking place. And this one is called Cooking with Clive. And I think you can guess who Clive is. I know exactly who you're talking about. Spicy is right. Yes, yes. So Clive Larkman has a passion for cooking and growing plants. Um, He loves using all sorts of unusual herbs with an emphasis on no-fuss cooking. So you're going to actually be treated to a four-course supper feast Mm. while he shows you how to cook up a treat using gourmet food. So there you go. Now, um, as I said, this is coming up next Wednesday at Burnley College, 6.30 till 8.30. It's an eat-in and talk. Uh, Cost is $15 for um, friends of the friends group and uh, non-members $25. Bookings, of course, are essential for catering. 
You can phone 9035 6861 or you can email a.smith at unimelb.edu.au. Now, one for the 2nd of May, um, Pepper Tree Place, which is up there on the corner of Sydney Road and uh, Bell Street, uh, have got their next incredible Coburg food swap on. Uh, 10 o'clock through till 2 o'clock. They've extended up their hours. Now, they're also going to be running a workshop there with Diana Cotter, and she's going to be dealing with green manures and crop rotation. Uh, That will run from 10.30 till 11.30 with a cost of $10 to attend that uh, workshop. Um, They've also got uh, a volunteer-powered nursery featuring brassica bonanza and garlic mania. I love that. (laughs) So that would be lots of fun. Now, if you do want to um, want to join in the workshop, you need to uh, call Tash, and her number is zero four three one four nine four seven seven three. And of course, they're having a, a swap table there as well, a chance to uh, share your gardens, harvest, and tips. So that's all happening at Pepper Tree Place. 512 Sydney Road in Coburg, but as I said, it's actually on the corner of Sydney Road and Bell Street, so easy to find. So that's next Saturday. Uh, Now, another one for next weekend, Chrysanthemum Society of Victoria have got their annual exhibition on. Uh, Next Saturday, 1 o'clock till 4 o'clock. Next Sunday, 12 noon till 4 o'clock. This is being held at Burwood Heights Uniting Church Hall, which is on the corner of Burwood Highway and Blackburn Road. Admission for that one is $3. Okay, well, it is time that we invited our listeners to join us. We'd love to hear from you this morning. Do give us a call. The number is 9419. 0155, that's 94190155. Or this morning we have Liz on the outside line. If you'd like to have a chat to Liz, 94198377. Stephen, let's start with a couple of plants while we're waiting right. for calls. What a good idea. All right, we'll start with this little wee one here. Most people are familiar with society garlic, um, Tulbagia. Um, and yes, it is edible. Um, but when you chop all the leaves off, it's not as ornamental. Um, so, <laughs> so there is this sort of, you know. The trouble with things you can eat that look pretty is it's really hard to eat them because they're looking pretty. You can <laughs> use the flowers. A lot of people use the flowers yeah. as a garnish yeah. or those sorts of yeah. things. Yes, yeah. yeah. And, but this one is, uh, this is, well, I guess the Jenny Craig of, um, of society garlics because it's a wee little tiny one. Um, Talbagia cominsii. And it flowers virtually from late spring right through to the end of autumn. So it just flowers and flowers and flowers. It has tiny little um, soft mauve-ish flowers, I guess, uh, almost verging on white. Um, the whole plant only grows to about 15 to 20 centimetres tall. Um, so on the edge of a border as a rock garden plant or even growing in a nice pot sitting on the barbecue table or something like that, it gives good value. Mm. Um, it's so quite it's a the- fine-looking plant, though, isn't it? So, mm. you, I mean, having it in a pot would be fantastic. Oh, yeah. You mm. actually get to bring it a bit closer. And you can lift it up and, and enjoy the plant yeah. Better. Um, And there's some lovely Talbaggias out there. For a while I had quite a little collection of them and I've lost a few of them, so I must try and get them again because they're just such good value. They just go on and on and on and on. Well, I I mentioned um, a few weeks ago that um, in Templestowe they've got the whole um, centre of the roundabout planted out with the 
the more usual yes, yeah, um, the society. Probably, yes, yeah. yeah. But it's just en masse for this whole roundabout, mm. and it's been flowering for months and mm. months and months. It never gets too high, of course, mm. and it just works and, and so they're well. And plants too. They're, they're, unlike some of the ornamental grasses and things, they don't build up a lot of thatch in them. Mm. No. So you don't get all that dead stuff in them, so you don't then in theory, need to have some council worker come along with and a brush cutter slash, and yes. slash everything but down and make it look awful. They're also, you know, as reasonably pretty happy in a wet, wet spot or a dry, dry yeah. spot, which is, you know, there's there's few plants that'll do that. I've actually even seen them growing in a pond. Yeah. So, uh, I mean, as far as uh, an allium that can do that, that's outrageously, yeah. you know, yeah. adaptable. And, and I have yet to see any of the tulbaggias show even the slightest sign of weediness. Mm, they don't, see they don't mm. seem to self-seed around. Mm. I've got one in the the garden at home called Tulbagia crepacea maritima that I got years and years ago uh, from one of the seed exchanges from overseas. And it does send up the odd seedling. I get the odd one of that come up. But certainly Cominciae, Violacea. Uh, I've also got one that used to be called Tulbagia fragrance and is now Similari, um, <laughs> which is a big broadleafed one with big flowers and it's white and scented, which mm. is really nice. Um, they just make nice, neat clumps. Mm. So yes. they're, they're, they're really good plants. And as Millie says, you can grow them almost anywhere about the only thing I don't think Tullbaggy is like is heavy shade. Mm. Uh, then they get scruffy mm. and they don't flower so well. But um, uh, I just think they're lovely plants. There's a few hybrid ones starting to show up now. There's one between, I think, Cominciae and, and um, Violacea that's being promoted with some sort of trade name on it. Mm. Okay. Uh, with a pinkish flower. Yeah. yeah. Uh, I can't even remember what they're calling it. Something stars or something along that line. I mean, being an allium too, you get that great benefit of um, they're usually very delicious nectar-filled flowers. Mm. So they're really good for native bees yeah. and all of those those critters really like them as well. So, yeah, just a great group of plants. Yeah, I think they're really good. So, anyhow, so Talbagia cominciae, I think it's a really pretty little thing, uh, well worthwhile considering for the garden. Uh, And, I mean, it doesn't matter how small your garden is, you can probably fit one in. Oh, heavens, yes. (laughs) I'd fit three in a pot and then underplant them with something, actually. Yeah, yeah, yeah. Now, although it's looking pendulous, it shouldn't be, uh, the the first of the daffodils is starting to flower. It's a weeping daffodil. A weeping daffodil, yeah. (laughs) I I don't quite know why this flower has flopped over like that, but some of the early hoop petticoat daffodils are starting to flower now. And they're an interesting group of daffodils, the hoop petticoats. One, because they've got a quite different flower shape to most of your other narcissus. But also... They have a remarkable flowering period. The first of them really are autumn flowering. Mm. And then there's different species and forms that will flower from about this time of the year, uh, sometimes even vaguely earlier, uh, right through until sort of about October. So from May to October, you can have hoop petticoat daffodils and flower. And the really weird thing about it, and I don't quite understand why, but the earliest flowering ones are white, the mid-season ones are pale lemony yellows, and the late-season ones are bright yellow. And it seems to work throughout that group. That's and interesting. So, yes, yeah, so all of your early ones like this will yeah. be creamy white. There has to be a reason. There's got to be some sort of reason for it, and I'm not quite sure why, but it certainly is true. Every species or cultivar I've bought, if it's a white flowering one, it'll be uh, autumn, early winter flowering. If it's lemon, it'll be midwinter flowering. And if it's bright yellow, it'll be spring. Well, actually, Every that's interesting because that's something that I notice a lot is different seasons have uh, more of a propensity to have different colour plants. Like, you know, mm. in early spring there might be your yellows and then yeah. all of a sudden the yellows are starting to fade out and the mauves are coming yeah. in and there's got to be some, you know, link yeah. between Although it does vary from place to place because I can remember <laughs> writing an article for um, Gardening Australia magazine years ago specifically on the yellow of spring. And I remember mm. Jennifer Stackhouse saying, oh, but in Sydney it's the pink of spring. Oh. Ah. 
Yeah. Well, that's and the plant it, choice. I, I you, guess it's probably about pollinators yeah, way back when, thing. you know. Yeah. The temperature and all those links that we yeah. don't yeah. think about. So this little one anyway is, is a hybrid who petticoat. It's a, a hybrid of Narcissus cantabricus, which um, uh, comes from uh, Spain. Mm-hmm. And it's one that was bred by a, a grower down in Tasmania, Rod Barwick, who breeds a lot of interesting dwarf daffodils. Uh, and he's mm-hmm. called it Fino. And I've got no idea what the name means. He does have some strange names. Uh, he he named a whole race of daffodils after famous uh, mythological detectives. Uh, uh, <laughs> right. But he changed their names. So And the way he did it was he used the surname and the last letter of the Christian name. So there is a daffodil called Colmes, as in Sherlock oh, Holmes. Holmes. <laughs> and there is another one called Spruit. That's uh, right. And there's another one called Smarples. Um, <laughs> And That's fantastic. Yeah, what made so, him and laugh, it took, me, it, it took me ages to work out what the hell he'd been doing. I thought, these names, they're bizarre. And there was, and I talked to him about it once and he said, uh, the weirder the names are and the sillier they sound, the better these daffodils sell in America. The Americans <laughs> love the names. So, And there was one that I wouldn't buy from him for years because I just hated the name so much. And then when I saw it in flower, I had to buy it. And it was called Beezer Babe. And I just thought it was such a naff, stupid name. I couldn't bear to buy the daffodil. But when I saw it in flower, it was such a good little miniature daffodil. I ended up with Beezer Babe in the garden. Um, so Rod does produce some really interesting ones. And Fino, although it should normally stand up, and I don't know why this flower's flopped over, is quite a good one of the hoop petticoats because not only is it a nice early white, mm. but when you get a good colony of it it's, it, it's one of those that has successional flowering. So you'll get your first flower will come up from a decent-sized bulb and then you get a second and maybe a third. So the actual flowering period of nasty. Extended, yeah, yeah. Fino is, is actually quite a long time. Yeah, so good. It's, it's one of the good ones because some of the hoop petticoats that are out there are known to be shy bloomers and people end up with great colonies of hoop petticoat daffodils in their garden with hardly ever a flower. Mm. Yes. Uh, and it's very frustrating if you end up with one of those really bad clones. Yes. Um, but Fino is a good reliable one that, you know, is a good heavy flower. Um, and certainly any of uh, Rod Barwick's hybrids, and he's done quite a number in the hoop petticoat group, um, are always worth looking out for because he's also bred some quite large flowered ones. Okay. He's got one called uh, Mitimoto um, hmm. that's got a flower about twice the size of your average hoop petticoat and a nice soft lemony yellow that is, again, a sort of a midwinter flowering one. Yep. Um, so they're, they're really interesting little narcissus. Yeah. And uh, um, amongst the daffodil breeders, he's well known. But uh, we've got some really good breeders in this country that often go unsung, mm. in fact. Mm. Uh, and he's bred some wonderful stuff. Um, so, And he's a very eccentric Fabulous. Where character. is he? He's in a place called um, it's Glenbrook Bulb Farm is the name of his company, and it's um, Claremont in, oh, so in not Hobart. Far out. Yeah, yeah. He's, he's basically in suburban Hobart. Right. Um, and I remember going and visiting Rod years and years and years ago, and um, he had a donkey that was putting its head over the fence and t- pulling the tops off bulbs, and <laughs> and he had some feral bunnies that had become quite tame. Uh, and there was naughty bunny and bad bunny and and whatever, <laughs> and, and they come in, and, and and they'd come in and eat his plants, and he and he just seemed to be quite happy to let them do it. Uh, and he he just the most amazing collection of stuff. And I mean, it's not just daffodils; he has crocuses and all sorts of other small bulbs. Uh, and he he generally puts out a, a twice a year catalogue. I think uh, I don't know whether you can get him on the phone still, but he used to have no <laughs> phone contact at all, no computer contact. You had to write to him. Uh, um, 
His sister Anne had a mobile phone, and I used to be able to get in touch with them via her occasionally. Um, but really an interesting character. Um, right. And has bred some fantastic daffodils that have been winning prizes all over the world. Yeah. So wow. he's, he's a damn good breeder. So yeah. that's one of Rod Barwick's little daffodils. So that's, that's sort of fun. Okay. Hey, Stephen, I was just wondering, with the hoop petticoats that, uh, you know, if they clump up and don't flower... Can you add potash fertilizer to uh, Look, you can I mean, try all those things, but if it's a poor clone, it's never going to be a good flower. Mm, it's yeah. just as simple as that. Yeah. But the trouble with hoop petticoats is, too, that they need the right growing conditions to set flower buds. It's not so much about potash. It's more about proper resting. And they do like a really dry summer rest. Uh, in fact, they don't even mind a dry summer baking rest because yep. a lot of them come from dry areas of Spain, Morocco, all through that sort of really dry Mediterranean yep. part of the world. Mm. And so a lot of people don't keep their their hoop petticoats dry enough. And in the ground you think, oh, yes, well, I'm not watering or whatever. But, you know, you get a rainstorm and if the bulbs are dormant, the water can sit around them for quite a long time if it's not being taken up by something else. And the same in pots. If you leave your pots sitting out in the in the garden and they get wet during the summer, uh, then the bulbs sit moist and they don't like it. Uh, so a lot of the hoop petticoats actually do better as pot-grown plants, but they do need to be regularly divided, repotted, refertilized, and things because they expend the nutrient in potting mix fairly quickly. Yep. And most of mine get done every year. Mm-hmm. Uh, I repot them every year. Uh, well, as I'd have to anyway because I've got to pull out some to pot to sell to other people as well. So, yep. uh, I'm so using... they're a great little bulb for a pot, I guess. Oh, they're, they're, and, oh they're, yes. and statue-wise, they're ideal. You know, because they're, they're small. They're only, you know, 15, 20 centimetres tall. Um, you put 10 or a dozen of them in a little terracotta pot. Mm. Um, they can make a fabulous show sitting up on the barbie table or on mm. a plant stand in the mm. garden somewhere. And then when they die down, you put the pot somewhere where they're actually under an eave or something like that where they don't get any water on them mm. and just keep them dry for the summer. And that will generally stimulate those that actually have the propensity to flower well to keep flowering well. So what time of the year would you repot? Like if you're saying you need to do that, so you'd dry them off and then you'd repot yep, coming would, into growing season? I used to wait till they died down and then I'd actually take them out of the pots, store them in brown paper bags in the shed uh, and then bring them out again and pot them uh, in the late summer. Um, but I've got lazy of late and mm. what I've been doing is I just keep the pots dry until... I need to repot. So sort of uh, late, I do it all look, once. January, once. February, yeah. drag them out, put them in fresh mix, put them out yeah, in the garden. Yeah, yeah, yeah. So that, that's what I tend to do with a lot of my bulbs now. Instead of doing the double whammy thing yeah. where I've got to clean them all, bag them, label them, put them away. Shove and them then under put, the eaves. Yeah, so I just keep all the pots dry, put them somewhere I can keep them like that. Uh, and then come midsummer, when probably, apart from watering and weeding in the nursery, it's a good time to be doing a job like that. Mm. Uh, I then start going through my bulbs and I sort of, work my way through things. You get into the habit of which things need to be dealt with first, Mm. you know, the things that might stimulate a root system earlier or flower earlier. You sort of start with those and you work your way through your groups. Uh, And I'd always done that with bulbs that don't like to be dried out, like fritillarias and things like that, Uh, erythroniums and dogtooth violets and trout lilies. Uh, They don't like to be dried out, so I'd empty the pots, clean the bulbs, grade the bulbs into sizes, put small ones into one pot, put the bigger ones into another, uh, put the ones out for sale I wanted to sell. And I just figured, well, it actually worked quite well for all my bulbs. So that's Mm. what I've now started to do. So uh, I just repot them. When they need it. When they need it. Uh, And... um, and that seems to work. And if you use a slow-release fertiliser like an Osmocote type thing, you actually, in theory, don't need to feed them again. Mm. You know, they get enough nutrient out of, a, say, a six-month Osmocote mm. to take them yep. through until their next dormancy. Yep. Um, because I really think life is too short to be out there hand-feeding everything every five minutes with liquid fertilisers oh, and God knows yes. what else. And especially when you've got hundreds of thousands of the damn mm. things. Mm. Uh, so you've got to make it 
simple for yourself if you can. Mm. So you don't have any trouble with the um, larva of the African black beetle? I haven't had much trouble with my bulbs. The only thing I can say that happened last year, which had never happened before, is that I had some bush rats in who dug up bulbs and turned pots upside down and made an awful mess. Ate most of my species tulips. Oh, no. uh, Ate quite a number of my oxalis species. Uh, I had a huge amount of stuff lost by the the bush rat that decided to come in and and bring his family, I'm assuming. Um, And funnily enough, the ornamental oxaluses can sometimes get a double whammy because possums will eat them. Mm. And so I can get them up into bloom, looking gorgeous in the nursery, and then I'll come in the next day and it looks like somebody's been through with a brush cutter. Yes. And they've just eaten the tops off the lot, you know. Uh-huh. All those lovely little flowers that were just about to come out. Yes. Uh, and then they're all – and they don't kill them, uh, but they're wasted for that season because you can't show them off. really doesn't matter where you garden – there'll be something that yeah. does that, that devastates you. Usually like, possums and something else. Yeah. Yes, yes, possums yes. and – but it's, yeah. you know, if you're in the country and you don't have many possums, you know, like a, you, you end up with bunnies or, yeah, you know, yeah, like there's yeah. always yes. something. Yeah, there. There'll always be some critter that wants to get Wallabies. it as much as you do. Yeah. Yes. Uh, and, uh, yeah, so I don't get a lot of pest problems because I think partially – too, if you're re-cleaning your bulbs every year and you're watching out for any rotted bulbs or anything else that yeah. might be in there, and if, of course if there's grubs and things in the potting mix, well you're refurbishing them with fresh potting mix every year. Um, so yes, yeah, so bug-wise, I don't seem to get a lot of problems. It's more larger mammalian problems mm. I tend mm. to have mm. with my bulbs. Yeah. Um, and of course there's certain bulbs that do well in certain areas. So over a period of time, you learn what things you can grow well, and and you discard the things mm. that you don't. I mean, I'm not uh, even if it's quite rare, I'm not prepared to fight against nature completely to grow something just because it's a rare bulb if it's not really suited to my climate. Mm. Uh, so, you know, over a period of time, I've killed a whole pile of different things that I've tried. Uh, I've lost a lot of the South American bulbs I was growing because they don't seem to like our colder climate so much. So uh, I've sort of given up on most of those. But the Mediterranean bulbs seem to do really well for me. Most of the South African stuff does really well for me. Mm. Uh, so you sort of, over a period of time, work out which things are going to do best for you. Yep. Um, and that's what I've tended to do. Yeah, brilliant. I must remind listeners uh, that number, if you'd like to join us this morning, we've got Stephen Ryan, Millie Ross and AB in the studio. The number is 94190155. That's 94190155. Or on the outside line this morning, we have Liz, and she's on 94198377. So we'd love to hear from you. Okay. We've got another oh, bulb there, Stephen, yes, well, while we're might, talking yeah, we bulbs. Yeah, we might as well keep going bulbs. I yes. mean, we tend to talk about bulbs in the spring, but there's so much stuff that's bulbous that flowers at this time of the year that we should mm. be making use of. Mm. Uh, and, of course, one of the great genera is the Noreen or the Narini, or the Narini, uh, depending on which school you <laughs> went Narini. Yeah, well, John Patrick says Narini. <laughs> no, he says Liriope too. He does, yeah, yes, yes, yeah, he does. Yeah, yeah, yeah and I think we he does it just. I, I, I think he does it just to, to annoy everybody, really. But I, I think it could be interesting when I'm because I'm about to go on tour with John, and uh, yeah, well, <laughs> some of his names might be rather interesting yeah. as we go around some gardens. Well, anyhow, I would say Noreen because that's the Australian way of talking I would about say him. Noreen too. Yeah, yeah. <laughs> and the one I brought along this morning is one that I'm particularly fond of. Um, one called Undulata. 
for obvious reasons, because it has very undulate petals. Mm. Um, and it's a dainty small one. I mean, it's reasonably tall. It's sort of about average height for one of this genus, mm-hmm. I suppose. But the flowers are small, dainty, and very, very crinkled around the edges. It's a real Barbara Cartland pink. Um, and it clumps up nicely in the garden. And like most of this genus, you're better not to lift and divide them regularly, leave them to build up into a nice big fat clump because yep. they flower better when they're in close company with each other. Uh, this particular one seems to be able to grow perfectly well in semi-shade right through to full sun. Wow. Uh, so it doesn't need a baking like some of the species tend to do. Um, and um, it's just such a dainty, sweet little plant. It's really cute. And it's funny because at this, I, I'm not a great planter of pink in my garden I have to say I find pink is one of those mm. colours that's insidious it's, there's so many good plants there's that are pink there's always a few it that a... sneak in oh, though I'm the same Stephen yeah, and then you're like gosh why am I yeah. why did I let you yeah, pink in there you're so beautiful yeah 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 and, and it does I mean it takes over and so I tend to try and keep my pink things sort of controlled um, but you know when you think about it there's so many great plants that have so many pink versions I mean roses camellias azaleas magnolias you know blossom trees there's so much pink out there yes. so it almost takes over without you realizing it because mm. they're just such good plants uh, but it's funny and when the autumn sets in and i've got all these leaves going red and orange and yellow and things i actually quite enjoy the pink at this time of the year because it's just so outrageous mm-hmm. you know to have this bright pink things these nareens or whatever um with with all those red leaves and stuff i mean it, it's it's letting go of your colour coordinating mm. self, uh, and the autumn is the time to do it. If you're going to, if you go, if you are a colour coordinator, you need to let yourself go in the autumn. So I actually quite like to have bulbs that are pink at this time of the year, uh, and I've got some of the common old marine Bowdeni eyes in the garden at home with their big pink flowers yes. that are outrageous and they're, they're great fun. Uh, but this little undulata one is growing under one of my um, elder flowers, one of my uh, Sam Bookers, which has bright gold-edged leaves and it's all going sort of yellow and gold at the moment and that's bright pink and, and, and it's, I don't know, this and this cool weather and, and lower light and all that sort of thing, somehow or another it, it, it doesn't, doesn't, yeah. doesn't clash, doesn't yep. sort of scream at you, but it's fun. Yep. And so I think, you know, this time of year that's what I want. I want mm. fun. Well, nature isn't fussed what colours go with what, is it? Mm. Well, it doesn't yeah, tend it really to be, uh, although I think nature does things on su- in such quantity sometimes yeah. that it can't help but work. I mean, it's like if you go to, as I have done, to uh, Namakwa land in, um, in Africa to see the flowers in their floral area, you'll have huge drifts of orange veldt daisies and then there'll be huge drifts of bright purple um, babianas and, mm. and pink oxaluses and all sorts of stuff. But they're in such huge quantities that mm. it sort of has to work. Well, it kind of is. You know, um, my dear my dear friend Lou who, who designs gardens and she designs mostly Indigenous gardens, you know, she, she often said, well, if you walk into nature, there might be, you know, you look at a square metres, there might be seven or eight species there, but I, at one time in the year only three will be really yeah. featuring. And yeah. so it's kind of like there's a lot happening there, but it is the simplicity of maybe three plant yeah. species. In the Australian bush it might be, you know, a eucalypt, a dianella, and, you know, the apacris are just starting in. In most of, most of Victoria now, yeah. so and that's the thing that's really beautiful and just kind of ties that whole green area together. And yeah. then mm. later in the season, something else will sit up, and you know, like yeah. so, the the com- complexity is there. But yeah. in in one moment, you've just got that lovely, simple sort of palette of plants working mm. together. Yeah. yeah. So yeah. So there you go. So yeah. So there's my little bit of pink for the morning. I like it. Yeah. <laughs> it's um, very pretty. I mean, it is. It is pretty. Like you know, the traditional marine that you see on old country properties and the drive that is pink. Like yeah. oh yeah, you know that is a pinky. 
you can't really look directly at. But yeah. this is like a far more subtle pink. It the is. flower is delicate and, yeah. you know, it's got a lovely ripple to yeah. it. It's, and, of course, um, the other thing I didn't mention is that they make such good cut flowers. Mm. You know, so if you're looking for a bunch of flowers for the house at this time of the year that'll last for weeks in water, mm. um, pretty hard to beat them, actually. They're well, really they're good. on such a nice strong stem too. Yeah. They're going yeah. to sit upright for yeah. you. Yeah. They're, yeah, they're a great cut flower. So, yeah, yeah so I've got very fond of them. But... Um I'm sort of on the hunt all the time for the more obscure ones. And there, there are some really quite rare ones. In fact, I meant to bring down one this morning and I forgot. Uh, Noreen Pudica from South Africa and has tubular white flowers that sort of trump, trumpet-shaped flowers with just a slight pink stripe up the back of each petal. No frilling and fluting. It's just this sort of neat little trumpety flower. doesn't look anything like most people's concept of a Noreen. And it's not only comparatively rare in cultivation here, but it had the poor sense to grow in an area in South Africa that's slowly disappearing under housing. Oh. Uh, and so it's quite threatened in the wild as well. Right. Uh, and yet it's a good little doer, grows in sun or shade, uh, uh, multiplies quite well at the nursery. I always have more stock than I sell each year. Mm. Uh, and it's a great little bulb. Mm. So, you know, so there are some really pretty obscure ones yes. that are well worth um, looking out. In fact, up in the Dandenongs on last weekend, because I was up there for With Tesla's Tesla, plant yes. fair, uh, Martin Ferrugia was up there selling a lot of his weird South African bulbs. And I came home with Hermanth- Hermanthus humulus in its giant leafed form. Cool. Oh, <laughs> and it's pink. <laughs> but he had a stock pot there. And, and these are the, the um, blood lily group yes. or uh, elephant's ears or whatever other common names you want to give them but he had a big one in a pot there and its leaf was easily a meter long wow and nearly half a meter wide uh, and each bulb had two leaves so they come up like a pair of huge lips uh, and it's just outrageous uh, do you know I, I picked up a couple of um hermanthus cochineas oh yes five bucks each oh well know, done that's cheap country fair yeah i just look i'm walking around and there's all this usually it's just weeds yeah, yeah. <laughs> people propagating weeds and i just spotted this she literally pulled them off the clump and put them in pots with soil so heavy you could barely carry it back to the car. You know, like, again, with my little broken thumb, I'm like, yeah. come and help me, come and yeah. help me to my pals. Yeah, five but bucks each like, is good Five value. bucks yeah. each, you'd pay 25. Yeah. Yes, yes well, I've got elberfloss in, in, the, in flower in the garden at home, the, the white one, which I think is really actually quite charming. It it's hasn't a got good quite, plant. It's, it's a lovely tough. plant. And I've got two forms of it. I've got a big flowered short-stemmed one yep. and a smaller flowered long-stemmed one yep. um, that I've collected over the years from some or another, mm. and they grow well in shade. They never need to be watered. Mm. I forget they're there for most of the year, mm. and then up they come, flowering at this time of the year. Cheery, big, fleshy green leaves. Mm. Great plants. Mm. So yeah, mm. so I was pleased to take home humulus to add to my collection. <laughs> yeah. uh, Martin reckons if I can grow elberfloss, I can grow humulus at Macedon. So okay, I'm going to yeah. give it a crack. Mm. Uh, and it'll be one of those plants, if it does well, where everybody will go, what's that? Mm. I love conversation piece plants in a garden. So there you go. Absolutely. Nobody's rung in yet. What's going on? Are they all asleep in bed? They must be. It's a lovely rainy day to stay in bed. Yeah. Yeah, so yeah. It's the perfect day to stay in bed. Be, no, I wouldn't be <laughs> <up there. laughs> Millie, let's go to a couple of the things you've brought in. Well, I've brought in a, a real mixture of things, as always, as I rush around the backyard. But, you know... Uh, as much as growing plants, I'm I'm very interested in how we use them. And um, so one of the things I've been playing with uh, a little bit lately is actually using plants to dye fabric. Mm. Um, and it, you know, just it, for me, there's just all these things that people do with plants. And it's just for me always exploring the, you know, the it, it, endless ways that plants are connected with the way we live and 
And so, yeah, I've been fussing around a little bit. And I, I picked this, you know, it was a ratty little thing. It's been in its tube for, um, for quite a, a while. Since I, yeah, <laughs> yes, since I got it. By the looks of it. And it probably won't go into a pot for a while. But that's, you know, just a simple thing, the dyer's chamomile, which is a yes. form of anthemus, which, um, you know, is a really obvious dye plant. But the thing that um, I found really fun about um, exploring this is that you can use all sorts of things to dye. Um, onion skins, brown onion skins oh, yes. create just the most vibrant yellow Beautiful. colour. Yes. And, and the thing that's great about them is that they'll adhere quite well to cotton as well as to protein fabrics like wools oh, and, mm. and um, silks. Which So that's kind of the thing when you, when, you get, when you start exploring it, you want to create really good permanent colour. You've got to start to understand the chemistry that's going on there um, and how the dyes actually grip onto the fabrics. So they say that proteins are better to start with because they – take dye a, a lot better without having to mordant, which is a whole other step where yeah. you're, you're yeah. preparing it. But the, one of the other things, and probably the best colour that we got, um, was actually from ironbark. And I'm holding in my hand a, a lovely of chunk of ironbark that had fallen off the tree. Like my friend and I were really strict, no pulling anything off trees. Yes. Yes. So we're like driving around. We Looking. go, ooh, ooh, ooh. And we can see all these. There was this this, this massive group of people picnicking, young people um, down near Williamstown, and this tree had shed a bit of you know its ironbark or had been knocked off onto the ground. And we were laughing because we thought those kids, I bet they think we're going to do something naughty with this and they'll probably be stealing some too in a little while. Yeah. You know, we're can you collecting... smoke it? What can yeah, you do exactly. With it? <laughs> That's the, the middle question of yeah. all kids. But um, it, it produced the most incredible deep red uh, colour. And so I just thought, you know, it's one of these things that I'm only just playing with now. And, and today actually I'm going to use the ironbark to, to do some pillowcases that I didn't get a great colour out of. So I'm going to try again. And I don't know if the dye will adhere. Well, you know, it's like a chemical bond, mm. basically. yes. yes. Um, and so whether that'll happen. But, yeah, just so much fun. One of, one of the really great colours to play with is actually um, the deadheads off uh, Budliers. And uh, amazingly, so you pull off all these dead purple flowers and put them in the pot and you get the most incredible limey yellow. Mm. Um, Which and is so, an unexpected thing, yeah. isn't it? Really same unexpected. Yeah. Same with the ironbark. Who yeah. would have thought, you know, yeah. dark brown. I might add ironbark's yeah. really good to grow dendrobium orchids on as well. Exactly. I mean, <laughs> so what can't you say about ironbark? Yeah. What an incredible plant. But yeah. Um, So, yeah, look, just, just having a little bit of fun with that and um you know I, I last winter i got so sick of coming inside to make a cup of tea that i made a little um rocket stove out of a mop bucket so yeah. it's you know you feed little sticks into the chamber in the side which is made out of tin cans and then you get this quite hot flame up the top and because it's a mop bucket it's got like old brass rollers you can sit your billy up on top of that so oh, while i'm actually gardening i can make a cup of tea and i'll often have and it roll, it's on wheels too <laughs> you can roll it around the ground <laughs> and so uh, i know i just was like oh, damn belly. this going inside <laughs> Yeah, yeah. So, it would mean taking your boots off and walking know, through the door. Exactly. I mean, you know, I don't have time for that. Yeah. So, so anyway, uh, I'm going to fire the rocket stove up as I garden this Brilliant. afternoon in the rain and um, and bubble the iron bark away. But because you, you know, realise what else you're going to have to get into now. Tie dyeing. Oh God, no, <laughs> no, no, no such. No, Back that's to not going to happen. And although, the 70s. I, although interestingly, a lot of the eucalypt foliage um, creates great colour. So cinerea um, mm. is really popular amongst dyes, and the peppermints because they have a small leaf, and as well as boiling the foliage up. To, to create colour. Um, people also do what they call eco-print. This, this woman, India Flint, who's, who's just brilliantly crazy, this woman in South Australia who kind of 
started this way of, of dying and um, I follow her on Instagram and she posts the most extraordinary photographs. Um, she They actually use like, you know, so you get a stick and you actually wrap the fabric around the stick and as you do that you sort of wrap leaves mm. into it. Yes. And then bind it up and, and, and sit that in the top of your, your dye pot so it's steaming. Ah, yes. And, um, and allow it to steam for, um, for a, a good period of time and then uh, when you unwrap it you get actually a, a print of colour of the, the foliage, yep. of the leaves on the, on the fabric. So I just think you know it's it's yet again another way we can play with plants and mm. it is becoming really popular and with a lot of young people coming into plants there's a lot of really creative people um doing creative things and and you know this is one of the areas i guess you know i speak to 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 you know young hipster gardeners in their 20s who this is what they're interested in you know mm. they're collecting seeds of woad and you know really working out what you mm. can die with and and i just think as long it's... as they're not up to sacrificing virgins yet no uh, well <laughs> no you, well you don't need plant material for that you <laughs> no. just need a good rock no and I can see moving from tie-dyeing into formium macrame will be the next. Maybe. Well, I mean, but weaving, you know, is something that I, I often, when I take when I take stuff to go and do talks, I'll often take it in my um, in one of my baskets that I, I you know, I got when I was in uh, in Manangrida, where they weave out of pandanus. And, you know, people think about weaving in bamboo and, and all of these things. And, we you know, I've got a basket with me right now that's made out of plants. But, you know, we have these plants in Australia too and we don't use them. Mm. And, and, you know... You know, not to to get on a, a bandwagon, but we we are so close to a culture, two hundred and twenty odd years, you know, ago, there was a culture that was using all of our plants for everything. Mm. So, you know, for me, it's just really exciting. And, mm. and you know, I've watched the women when we went to um, to the Tiwi Islands a couple of years ago, we went out and collected pandanus and then we went out and went looking for the Pogna globus, the colour root, oh, yeah. which is the plant they used to dye it. And it was the most mm. indescript sort of suckering shrub that wasn't everywhere in the bush. It was just in this kind of spot we knew where to go and we hacked up, you know, some of the suckers and took it back and the ladies, you know, peeled off the outer bar and use sort of that inner cambium layer which had a bit of colour in it and they boiled that up and that's what they dyed the pandanus with and mm. you know they, they darken the colour by putting some wood ash in which changes the pH yes you know that's no. what they're, they're doing and that just kind of knowledge of this is what we do if we boil this up for ages that'll get that colour and, and you know it's, it's practical and maybe it's ceremonial but as much as anything it's just decorative and mm. it's just like taking time to make things mm. you know I'm, of course I sanded my thumb off but it's because I like to make things you know and I've bought new yeah, power well, tools this you've week got I'm ready to go again. You've got another nine digits. Exactly. <laughs> and it's, you know, it is just a lovely thing to go through that process of making stuff. Okay, we've got a full board of callers, so we need to uh, get to some of them. First up, we're going to uh, Pam, of course, who's in Kyneton. Good morning, Pam. Hi, everybody. How are you? We're, we're well. all good. Um, Stephen, listening to you talking about nerines, I have trouble growing nerines here, and I was just wondering... <clears throat> the frost gets them a little bit in the winter time, but they should be flowering now, shouldn't they? Uh, some species are actually finished, but you should be in about high season with your nerines now. Yes. So if they're just all green, fleshy leaves, all lolling around on the ground, it, does that mean that I've got them in the wrong spot? I know that they shouldn't be planted too deeply. Yeah, most nerines like to have their noses up out of the ground. So they yeah, do need to be fairly shallow. Um, and it depends on which species as to whether they need to be out in the hot baking sun to, to really ripen up the bulbs or whether they're happy in semi-shade. Oh, um, and it does depend on how long they've been there too, Pam, because they take a little while to get their act together. Oh, do they? Mm, yeah, you need to oh, allow yeah. them to sort of settle into a garden bed. So I'd check to make sure that they're not too deep. 
Yeah. If they are, you're going to have to lift them, but that means you're going to also set them back. So yeah. they'll take another year or so to get settled in. Yeah. Noreen should be very growable up there. If you get a little bit of frost damage on the odd leaf, it shouldn't matter, uh, and they still should flower well. Yeah, so. okay. I'll check them out. And I've got some daffodils to plant today, but not the big daffodils, and they're not the miniature hoop petticoats. Mm-hmm. It's kind of like just a smaller miniature daffodil. Yeah. Would you put, um, when I plant them out... Would you put a bit of fertiliser in the bottom of the hole? I mean, no, um, no, I wouldn't. Um, no. You don't want to have too much fertiliser cl- that could be in close contact to the actual bulbs. Oh, it's going to put cover it over. Yeah, but even so, I, I, I um, and no? if you, most bulbs don't like a lot of feeding. You're inclined to over stimulate them, and you get far too much growth at the expense yeah. of flowers. Okay. Uh, I rarely feed bulbs in the garden. Okay. And I certainly don't remember ever putting fertiliser under anything I've planted. Okay. Um, So I wouldn't. Um, I would just plant them. And can... I've got a couple. And peas. Can I... I've only ever grown peas once and I planted them in the springtime and had quite a good crop. But would you put peas in now around here? I would have tried to get cold? them in a little earlier, actually, if I could have, to get uh, them started before the real cold weather sets in, because yeah, in Kyneton it's going to sort of mm. put a check on stuff. So yeah. I think you you could try, but I don't think you're going to get much of a, a, a growth start on them putting them in quite this late. Do a quick crop a rocket or something like that instead and mm. save them till the, you know, starts to yeah, And just keep them until the springtime. Yeah. I've got yeah. all the other things in. I know I have to get everything in while they're still mm. warmth in the soil and... You know, everything else I've got in. But, um, yeah. But so am I too late for broad beans? No, you can still put them in. I've got broad beans just germinating. I've had to re-sow my broad beans three times this year. Again, bush Bush rats. Uh, And, uh, uh, yeah, I'd come along and and there's these little neat holes dug in the ground and the the seed's gone. Uh, Have you ever germinated? I mean, I would probably get into the habit of germinating them in an egg cup or something. I'll probably have to do that, but I've never had this problem before. This Mm. is the first year it's happened to me. Um, And um, But, yeah, so I've sown another batch in another part of the garden where I'm hoping they won't notice them uh, for for the time being. And if I can get them germinated, they're generally fine. Uh, but he was a very clever one because he got nearly every seed. <laughs> so, but You're I, than you, Stephen. Yeah, well, and, and they've got all evening to play with it. So, yeah, yeah. so, yeah, so I, I would still be planting broad beans now. That's not a problem. Okay, and have you got plenty of euonymus in the nursery? Depends on which ones you're after. I've certainly got the um, Euonymus europaeus, the cork, uh, the European spindleberry, yeah. and I've also got Euonymus alatus, the corkwing spindleberry from yeah. China. Yeah. Um, and there might be some red cascade there, which is a big fruited europaeus. Yeah, uh, they'd be the main All one. Right. So I've got some. Yes, I'll pop in and and just quickly and the elder. You know the dark leafed elder that gets the pink flower. Yeah. Do you have any of those? Not at the moment. I'll have some probably in the late spring uh, of Nukio Purple, Black Beauty and Black Lace. Um, oh, and I'm hoping in about two years' time to be releasing my own. I've got oh, a, right. a seedling that came up in the in the nursery garden that's got quite prettily serrated foliage and the new leaves have a chocolate sheen to them. They go oh. green, but mm. they have a chocolate sheen to the new leaves. So I'm going to plant it out this year and see how it goes. Right. And if it, if it stays as distinctly interesting looking as it is at the moment, then I'll release it as a new clone. I've got a name for it. I'm going to call it Witch Hunt. Because yeah. <laughs> as you know, elderflowers keep witches away. Do they? Yes. 
I'll have to remember that. Yeah, yeah. So some of your friends stop coming around. Um, you'll know that they're probably out having a, a black mass somewhere you know, so, with their coven. And I was going to plant another one. Yeah. Yeah so, yeah, so I thought Witch Hunt would be a good name for a Sam book it's a great considering, idea. The, yep, considering yeah. its connections. Okay. Thank you very much for all of that. That's a I pleasure. I'll take it on board. Bye. All right. Bye, Pam. It is. A, they're such a good plant, aren't they? Oh, I like love just them. The, mm. I, there's one across the road from work that I, I used to know the owner of the house and so I used to go and collect flowers to make oh, cordial. Yeah. But And she's since sold the house. Nice nice young couple. But it, it's still full of flower. Yeah. It's been flowering mm. pretty much since – well, I don't know if it stopped. I don't know if yeah. it even drops its leaves. It's just in this incredible little microclimate. Yeah, so it just keeps and going. And never stops. Yeah. Uh, yeah, they're an interesting shrub. Mm. All right, what have we got now? Oh, we're going to go to Ken in Sunshine. Good morning, Ken. Good morning, everybody. Look, um, we've had a, a looks as though we could have won the park back. Oh, well oh, done. Ken, well done. And uh, we, we had, um, uh, what what actually happened, we had uh, um, the age take interest in, in it. They mm-hmm. did a half a, or a, nearly a page on the, on, on the park. Yeah, yeah, I saw Channel it Channel 9 paper. came, yeah. Channel 10 came, and mm-hmm. they, except for Channel 2. But anyway, um, I don't care, but the thing is it was... It was excellent, and um, the Premier said that administrators can't do what they're doing. So I think we could have won. But what I rang you up for, to give you a report as well, but also, too, we're going to have an Indigenous tree planting day. Fantastic. And if any of you people want to come along, I'll let you know. Yep. Especially the young lady from Footscray. <laughs> <laughs> hint, hint. Is that me, Ken? <laughs> when, when, tell us when well, it's happening. Uh, yes, it is. <laughs> but every one of you, you're all fantastic, and it'd be fantastic if, you, if, if I let you know we're going to invite the spe- a, a special school along to come with, come and help us with the planning, and um, we're just going to have a have a have a community picnic, and we're going to have a barbecue and. Do you know what day it's happening on yet? No, no, Ken, no, 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 no. You're no, in the planning no, no, no. stages. But the thing is, all in good time, but I'd just like to say that you're all invited and um, save our parks. And what a wonderful suburb I live in and wonderful people who they're listening. We always know how to get together and stand together as one. No, and I'm very Ken. proud of my community. Oh, well Thank you very much. Power to the people. Ken, what's the name of the park again if people it's want to have a look and see some of the... Macubri Park. It's... It's four house blocks. Macubri Park. That's right. So if people want to and, look uh, at the... And they call it Reserve. Yep. Yep. And they've, they've, they've tried to sell a whole heap. Yep. And um, we're beating them and, and they're bullies. Yep. Good work. And we're going to beat them. All right. Thank you very, very much for your support. Well, well, done, well done, Ken. Thank you. Bye. Right. Bye. There's oh, something... that's a good news story. Yeah, and the community coming together. I mean, yes, that's a, you know... It's fantastic. You've got to, got to remember to stand up, don't you, when you... When you're particularly about something as little as a park that people might let go easily, you know. And once a, it's on a, gone, on a, it's gone. Yep. That's you right. know, you look at Stonington now, they're trying to buy houses to pull down to build parks, mm. you know, because they realise that they don't have enough open space, yeah. you know. And so once you lose it, mm. you know, if you try to get it back, it's going to cost you a fortune. Yeah. All right, who we got next, AB? Uh, we have got Diane and Mulvanese. Good morning, Diane. Good morning. Um, I, we have a problem with the north side of our house. Um, it gets very, very hot in summer. Uh, the, currently, there's um, a concrete path about 44 inches wide, and we were wondering whether we could plant ballerina trees. I understand the roots are suckered and don't spread. 
Uh, well, I mean, they would certainly um, suit growing alongside a house. You might find it's actually quite hot for them along there. If it's um, a reflected heat paving, mm. uh, apples are one of those things that if it gets really, really stinking hot, they'll actually, the fruit will burn. Mm. Um, so, you know, it would be something I'd consider as an option, um, but maybe not the best option. There are lots of, you know, fruit trees that would really thrive along there, mm. um, uh, but maybe need to be trained, you know, in a, in, a, in a particular way. I mean, I've seen some fantastic espaliered pomegranates and things like that, Beautiful. which could look absolutely yeah, gorgeous. Oh, um, so, and yeah. And old boots are yeah, yeah, and would relish the heat. So, yeah. I mean, it, I guess that's, that's the, the question that I'd be asking myself. Is it going to be a bit too hot for apples along there? Well, um, we would be planting it against the fence, not against the house. Oh, so on the opposite yeah. side for the reflected yeah. heat. That should be fine. They're, they're really mm. good, productive um, trees. Yeah. And, and easy to manage because mm. they stay so mm. svelte. Yes, mm. right, right. Okay, and, and how deep do they actually go down with the roots? Oh, how long is a piece of string? Oh, um, they're a small tree, so you would imagine like a root system is mostly uh, a reflection of what's yeah, above, above the ground above. plus mm. some. Right. Um, so, uh, but it, they should be fine and you know really well. And they're prepared not going to do soil. any harm to a concrete path or oh, a gosh, fence. No, no. no I mean, you would you would you would actually plant a, a full size apple tree in a in a relatively restricted paved area. Mm. You know, I wouldn't right. wouldn't be worried about it. But um, you know, people often worry about things getting mm. into their plumbing. But it's really if your pipes are broken, anything. Or, you know, yeah, exactly. A petunia yes, it, will go it's for the it. pipe's fault. It's yeah. not the plant's yeah. fault. And, yeah. it, and if it cracks a path or it cracks a foundation, it was yeah. probably a very badly built path or foundation mm. in the first place, mm. well, we and not the tree's fault. Path up, I think. Yeah. So it should be fine. And look, even if it was going to cause some damage, it's not going to do it for the next twenty or thirty years. Mm. Oh mm. right. Well, that, that would see me out. Yeah. 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 <laughs> yeah. But look, you know, really good soil preparation, Diane. It's a great time to be looking for all of your deciduous um, fruit trees, Fantastic. and um, and you know, a little bit of calcium um, late in the season too. They like a bit of dolomite uh, usually as well. And, um, yeah, they're, they're really good, really good plant. I think some of those dwarf um, fruit trees are, are fantastic plants. Oh, they I actually, are, actually visited a, a, a wonderful gardener. Um, she was she didn't have a phone, Stephen. We had to ring her neighbour to go and tell her that we were going <laughs> to ring on Friday and then she'd come up to the house. And um, She lost her uh, all of her sheds and her garden in the, the fires two years ago. And uh, she'd, grown, um, she'd grown a row of dwarf peaches uh, from the the seed of a, a, a dwarf peach that she'd purchased, the little uh, pixie peach, and she had an entire row of ten plants that wow. produced different coloured flowers, pinks and whites, and they all fruited. Fantastic. Yeah, Pe- peaches and, and all nectarines dwarves. actually will from seed. I've got a seedling nectarine in the garden at home that is hugely productive. Yeah. You know, so, you know, this business about grafted fruit trees, I mean, in some cases it's an obvious and important thing to do, mm. but it doesn't mean you can't produce a good fruit mm. tree from seed. Yep. In fact, a friend of mine gave me some blood peaches this year and I've saved the seeds. Uh, I've got about a dozen seeds, which I've got to get into the ground soon. I meant to sow them already and I've forgotten, but it's reminded me. Uh, and they were the most exquisite fruit. They were delicious. And I've got an awful feeling that they might have come in as seed in somebody's bra from overseas about two generations ago or something. Fantastic. Yeah. That's how all the good stuff got here. Yeah, yeah. And so I think it came in here slightly illegally. Uh, but, um, you know, after a couple of generations, you can't take responsibility mm. for that. Mm. But the most fabulous flavoured fruit. Yeah. So, yeah, so yeah. I might have a few blood peaches in a year or so to hand around because I'll only want one. Yeah. Um, uh, but, you know, fabulous yeah. things. And yeah. they will all come pretty true to seed. They'll be fine. Yeah, so there's lots of options, Diane, if you if you want to squeeze it into small small spaces, I suppose. Yes, right. exactly. Um, can I ask you, um, how far from the fence should I plant the tree? 
Oh, they can be quite close. Mm. Uh, f- uh, f- close? 20 centimetres, yeah. 30 centimetres oh, right. would be plenty. Right. Whatever's convenient in in that path yeah. path sort of area, but um, yeah, they, I mean they are they're very columnar. They're uh, and you know you can even sometimes people train them on a sort of forty five degree angle um, to to get even more trees in mm. in a funny way. So you oh. can actually train them um, so that you get get a really lovely effect along along the fence line and mm. um, and and fit you know a number of varieties. And you will need to plant you know quite a few different varieties to ensure pollination and oh. and you know and also when you're choosing them. And this is you know probably the thing that's harder to do when you're choosing your fruit trees is trying to choose varieties that might extend your season. So, you know, don't don't choose three varieties that all ripen in February. Right. You know, try and choose a, an early, a mid and a late. Um, mm. And so then you'll have apples for a much longer period of time. Well, we've got three apple trees in the rear of the garden, but we just needed some shade along the north side of the house. And we've been trying for years to think out what to do with it. Yeah, they're, I mean, they're, they're not going to cast a, a huge amount of shade. They will yeah, provide some skinny. shelter, mm. but they are really skinny. And I think ultimately the height doesn't get much above three metres or so. Yeah. So, you know, as far as options for that, there, there might be some other things worth considering. And even if it's um, getting something sort of that can have a canopy, but it can't, you know, you actually lift that canopy so you can still pass underneath it. Um, yeah, something that you can sort of trunk up. Yeah. Might even be better because then you can have a canopy up in the air where the, I always tell people air's free. You know, know, you've got that space above your head Exactly, use uh, it And and there's no reason why you can't use it So if you've got something that you can lift the canopy up By removing lower branches Mm. You'll still have plenty of room to go down the path Mm. But then you'll have something that spreads out at the top which might be better than something that's very skinny. Mm. I tell you that we planted, um, and this year I fruited really heavily for the first time, but about four years ago planted a, a crab apple cross. Mm. It's a mongrel apple from Tasmania that's called the Hewenville crab, um, and it was um, brought into production by by the guys at Woodbridge, so Bob Magnus mm. and, and um, they. It's it's like a quite a large, um, you know, it'd be the size of a small. Uh, you know, it's it's a larger than a crab apple, but it's not quite a full size apple, and it has the so most sort of beautiful, about the size of an apricot, maybe. Yeah, like a little bit bigger than that. Like mm. they were they were good size apples, and it has this incredible ruby blood red um, sort of flesh, uh, and it's a quite it's it's tart enough that it's sort of a crab apple, but it's sweet enough that it's an eating apple. And I've made some jelly out of it. I've dehydrated a whole lot, so I've got all these bright pink dehydrated apple, um, and that's a lovely tree. It's got a really uh, fantastic sort of almost a burgundy foliage, um, and then these big dark red orbs. So it's been a really, really good tree and producing its um, beans off in West Footscray. Mm. Really nice and, and, yeah. and forming a lovely canopy as well. Mm. Yeah, mm. so there's a few ideas for Thank you, you so mm. much. That's a pleasure. Thank you. So many plants, so little time. Oh, yes, yes. There's not, there's never just the right plant. There's Seven just the right options. hundred, you know. Yeah. And so, oh. you know, when people come and they say, oh, I want a tree for the garden and, you know, what would be the best one? And you go, oh, no. And they say, someone else said this. And you're and like, well, no, that's I don't their like opinion, that. yeah, you know. Yeah. But, oh. yeah. I actually think that's a dreadful tree. And then you have to go on to, you know, a whole pile of other ideas. and oh. It's really difficult because you don't want to, like, and, you know, we're sort of experiencing this with a friend and um, who's had a whole lot of advice but had advice from two people over a period of time and the design got a bit changed and then that meant the landscapers haven't been able to build it properly and, you know, it's quite complex and, you know, you, you have opinions but they're your opinions, you know, uh, and, you, you know, how many cooks do you want in the kitchen? Mm. How, what do you say, look, that's a bad idea, I think. 
um, and that's a good idea, but that idea is quite good, but you need to change it a bit. <laughs> you know, it is, it yes. is tricky knowing how yes. much information you give to, to different yes. people well, or how much I've they talked need your my, opinion. Well, I've actually talked myself out of quite a number of sales by giving people too many choices. <laughs> um, it's, a, it's amazing how it happens because they come in and they want something and so you ask them how big they want it to grow and blah, blah, and you talk about the aspect soil, all that stuff, and then you take them around and you say, now, you could have one of those, but on the other hand, that tree's every bit ooh, as good. But, uh, and on that one there... And look, next week I've got such and such coming in, and, and before then it's you know, too hard. They run and, and screaming they, out of the yeah, nursery. Yeah, they do. They it do. was the it was this the key skill of Warwick, <laughs> the late great Warwick Poynton, and much fun was made of him at his funeral about mm. this. That there, and I walked in. We filmed there last week, and I walked in and just saw this huge bed full of Maria paniculata, and it's like a you know it's like a totem sort of ever Warwick that he would just tell people that's the plant you want. And he would just fill the trolley up with it, and out they'd go. And he would never give them the yeah. If you give choices, he'd just go. I know that'll grow. I know it'll flower. People love it. And he'd say, if you turn your brain on, you know. (laughs) That's what he used to say all the time. But Uh, you know, and that was just like that's a nurseryman who just was interested in people having success and selling plants. And you know, out the gate they'd go, and and mm. you know they'd be pleased as punch that they had something that everyone else had. Yeah, yeah. I, on the other hand, go out of my way to go the other way. And it certainly can be counterproductive. But when I do win, I sort of think, well, I've just made somebody take something home that's really interesting, really different. Their neighbours won't have one. Uh, I think that's a good thing. So, Mm. you know, I might not make as many sales as Warwick did, but (laughs) some of the ones I do make I think have been well thought through and people will have something interesting in their garden. Because I always say to people – we can't all have the Lamborghini in the garage and we can't all have the Picasso on the wall, but we can all have a plant in our gardens that our neighbours haven't got, mm, yeah. you know, so that there can be some individuality. Mm. Plus, you, you're encouraging biodiversity. Well, you are. Which right. is yeah. a good thing. Yeah, I think it is. Yeah. And, and, I mean, there's always alternatives. There's always something else you could be planting instead of the obvious thing. Yes. Um, and... Um, you know, and, and things come in and out of fashion. Things become hackneyed and boring. Just you know, They can be good plants, but they're just everywhere and, and you're sick of them. Two years later, you're like, oh, gosh. Yeah, why I did I ever think that was a good idea? Yeah. You know, so you know, I think if we can sort of encourage people to plant all sorts of stuff, you don't have that same sense of, of deja vu every time you go through somebody's garden and see yet another Chanticleer pear or yeah. a golden diosmer or, a, dare I say, a standard diosmer. iceberg rose. <laughs> uh, you know, you can always have something else. Exactly. Yeah, so. So, um, you know, well, even with roses, I mean, there's so many thousands of different roses out there. Why does everybody plant the same ones? There's got to be other ones out there. I'm just I'm being sneaky and showing Stephen. We were talking about golden diosmas. I thought this was a golden diosma as I drove. You have to get on my Instagram account. I'm the Thrifty Gardener if you want to see. Uh, the, yeah, it's a, it's a melaleuca. I think it's the uh, golden form, one of the cultivars that someone's clipped into a man. They made the teeth out of tin cans, his eyes out of plastic plates, and I thought that's genius. That should be done with every golden diosma, yeah, yeah. every fuel station yeah. across the country. Yes, yes, it would be fantastic, wouldn't it? Yes. Anyway, we should. Take, take yeah. care of the calls. Yes, uh, we'll go to Sharon now in Cheltenham. Good morning, Sharon. Oh, good morning. Uh, yes, look, I had four quick questions, if I may. Mm-hmm. Uh, one was, um, I'm looking for, is there such a thing as a mustard-coloured climbing rose? Hmm. Not apricot. Probably. Yeah, look, there will be, but that's the sort of question we should be asking of Diana Sargent, yeah. actually, when yeah. she's in here, because... Uh, 
That's yep. a very specific question. Yeah. I would give them a ring. I'd yeah, give... yeah, ring Silky Gardens Rose Farm at Clonbernane. Yes. Uh, and, in fact, Pam's going to find the phone number, I think. Yep. She's flicking oh, through yeah. her, her wonderfully well-organised file <laughs> of information there. Uh, Graham and, and give, Diane will yeah, know for gra- sure. They will know for certain, and they will tell you the cultivar, and they'll probably be able to sell it to you. Mm-hmm. Okay, so have you, got, have you got paper and pencil, Sharon? Yes, I'm here. Ready? Okay, so the number is 5787... Yes. Double one, two, three. Two, three. Uh, good. My husband's written it down too, so we won't make it. <laughs> okay, excellent. But, yes, they will tell you about a good climbing mustard-coloured mm. rose if there is such a thing. So. They've, uh, they've got a great newsletter that they send out too. If you get sign up online, they'll email you out a newsletter every, I think it's every, every couple week. of weeks, every week. No, it's every week. And Goodness. so, yeah, and it's coming into the bare root season, so anything they don't have in stock, they'll be able to get. Yes, exactly. Mm. Oh, so there you go. So there's the right first time. question. Now, the next one was um, my pomegranate, a new one. It seems to have curly leaf. Is that possible? Pomegranate with curly leaf. It, it, look, it may have had a little bit of aphid earlier in the year or something that's curled yeah. the leaves or something like that. I certainly wouldn't worry too much about it. I mean, right. pomegranates will come through everything. So, yeah, so I wouldn't lose sleep. And they're going to be shedding their leaves. Yeah, and they're going to drop their leaves any minute anyway. Uh, Oh, it's deciduous. Oh, yes. Oh, yes. Okay. Uh, Obviously a newly planted pomegranate (laughs) if you haven't seen it through a whole year yet. It's only about... Six inches high. Oh, okay. well, well, it'll be it's a bare deciduous. stick fairly soon. Don't tread on it. Yeah, and, and don't be frightened when its leaves go yellow and drop off. <laughs> they do have quite a... I ran it or I will walk on it. Quite a, quite a, yeah, I do that all the time. Um, it's got quite a long, thin leaf, so it maybe just isn't, you know, kind of unfurling properly yet. But um, no, I wouldn't say you could ever really get curly leaf no. on it. No. Maybe well, a bit of insect attack. Maybe, yeah, well, that's know. what I was thinking. Maybe yeah. earlier it might have had some yeah. aphid or something that distorted the leaves. But, you know, it's a bit hard to tell. But I certainly wouldn't worry about it. No, I mean, no. it'll bounce back. Oh, that's fine. Now, the other question was, my daughter um, hasn't done anything with her garden. and um, Shame on her. She hmm. keeps postponing it. I was wondering, do you know anyone that does native garden designing? What are uh, you? Oh, Cheltenham. Um, yeah. I mean, I, I definitely. Yeah, yeah, yeah. We we certainly know a few people. Um, mm. Well, I know some that, which really aren't out your way, um, but um, possibly they would travel. I mean, if you if you like, we can take your number and I could give you a call back with with relevant numbers. That'd be great. Yes, I'll do that. So, um, uh, when 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 you finish speaking to us, yep. um, we'll put you back to Rosemary, and she'll get your phone number. Oh, thank you very much. Okay, so did you have another question? Oh, look, just a quick one. Second year that my colistamin's being viciously attacked by caterpillars. Mm-hmm. Um, now, uh, I haven't sprayed it. I don't particularly want to, but I don't want to lose it either. Well, you won't lose it. No, all right. Uh, well, the caterpillars I'll... will make a mess of it, but you won't lose it, and caterpillars turn into butterflies. Yeah. <laughs> or moths. Or moths, or moths <laughs> yes. Um, uh, if they're really giving it a hard time, the best thing to do is to use the finger and thumb technique. Mm. Or just prune them off. Yeah, or just prune Chuck the bits the off. Yeah. 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 yeah, so I, I wouldn't. I certainly wouldn't be spraying them. Uh, I think that's sort of using it's a sledgehammer cool. to kill them. I keep shaking it and getting them off, but I just wonder if they can crawl back up. Oh, they probably do. They probably do. I, I guess um, the, the key would be that maybe it's just a seasonal thing. The other thing is, is the plant under some sort of stress? So, you know, if it's yeah. in, in, a, in a spot where it's not particularly happy, it'll be more likely to be attacked. Yeah, um, I, and, yeah, get some, get some little chooks and put them in underneath the tree for a little while. <laughs> yeah, and, yeah and then when you shake the tree, they won't crawl back up again. No. <laughs> no, no. Well, look, thank you very much. That's okay, well, just, just hold on and we'll take your number off here. 
Yes, thank you. I, I guess the other thing too, and you know, this is—I know this sounds kind of like it's a long process, but um, just having a lot of leaf litter, woody mulch, encouraging just normal birds to mm-hmm. come into your garden. You know, the more mulch you've got, the more activity you've got in the soil, and the more insect activity, and they'll actually uh, get in there and, yep. and move stuff around. And, yep. and 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 you know, it's a simple thing. Even if you don't have room for plants, chuck some woody mulch on the ground, and you can you know encourage birds into your garden that way. Yeah. Sure, it'll be blackbirds a lot of the time, but yes. uh, still, there's still birds. In the- they're still, still effective, yeah. 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 And they'll certainly chuck things around. Yes, they do. <laughs> oh, great. We're going to Marion now and Frankson. Good morning, Marion. Oh, good morning. Um, yeah, I've got um, a persimmon that has um, all the leaves curled sort of longitudinally months ago. Oh. Yeah. And um, I, I thought it was because it was too dry. I was going to say it sounds like a dry situation. Yeah, well, I thought think. it must have been because it was too dry. So I started giving it lots of water, but it didn't ever really respond and they stayed curled over. Mm. In the main, they don't look like... They look like quite healthy, yeah. mm. but just curled around. Mm. Again, I wouldn't be worrying about no. it. Yeah. Um, uh, it's one of the... How long has the tree been in? Oh, years. Yeah, so it's been there for quite a long time. Yes, and yeah. it had a good crop of fruit. Yeah, and look, the, it was a dry season. We didn't get the heat yes. this year, but it's been an exceedingly long dry season. And I think you'll find the leaves... Suffered from dryness, but even though you watered, they'd already sort of formed into that shape, so they would stay that way. Um, And again, they're going to drop all their leaves shortly. You'll get fresh ones next spring. Um, I think all things being equal, it'll be fine. I would suggest, though, that if, um, if you have been watering... You may find the water hasn't been getting down as well as you might think it would, and it may be worth getting a wetting agent mm. or something onto the ground to make sure that that water's actually getting down. Yeah, I did do that. Oh, good. I'd have good. a little explore, just yeah, to, you know, yeah. have, dig a little hole outside of that drip zone and see, yeah, see what the soil's doing. Because yeah. I know certainly in my place the ground is as dry as a bone underneath. Yeah. Uh, and when it gets to that and you're watering, I find that you water, it goes into the leaf mould and then it runs down the driveway. Mm. Uh, <laughs> so it doesn't really get down into the soil below. So until you break that sort of mm. tension of the, the hydrophobic soils, um, it's not getting right down into the ground. Yeah, I did put some product around and water it in, but I have noticed before that that only lasts for a short time. Anyway. Yeah, well, those products don't last forever in the ground, so you mm. do have to top them up regularly. Mm. Uh, yeah. But certainly after a long dry season, it might not hurt to break that tension by getting another wetting agent down even now yep. with okay. the rains coming in and stuff. Terrific. Okay, I'll do that. All right, fantastic, Mary. Crossed. Yes, oh, look, I'm sure it'll be fine. Yeah. Okay. Fantastic. Thanks very much. Okay, bye. Bye. With the uh, lovely rains, my um, I went down looking around the garden and the thing that I'm putting the pressure on, so I have to move out of my house <gasps> in, in about... I know, like, I haven't talked about it too well, much because we, we I don't know where... Out. Yeah, I know. I don't know where I'm going to move to. That's the thing. But I immediately, of course, started panicking about starving to death. Yeah, uh, as you would. <laughs> during the transfer. Because yeah, you've never been able like, to find a shop, have you? No, I know. I don't know about them. So <laughs> and I was panicking. I was thinking, oh, God. Gosh, I can't even plant any greens. Oh, what am I going to eat? And then I went, <gasps> nettles. And I ran down to the back bed that always gets us and I raked all of the mulch back and I put the sprinkler on it. <laughs> and now I've got a nice little crop of nettles coming up. And this morning I was down watching the rain soak into my little nettle, nettle crop. So that's going to save me from, you know, having I'm to eat stuff from starve. the shop. Yes. Yeah, yeah. <laughs> it would be sad, really. It would be sad. Oh, dear. All right, we're going to John and Melton. Good morning, John. Oh, hello, everyone. Hello, John. Hello, John. How are you? Good, thank you. It's uh, John Bentley, uh, President mm. of the Friends of the Melton Botanic Garden. Oh, morning, what a great John. place. My ears pricked up this morning when I heard Stephen talking about Society Garlic and Haymanthus and Nareens. Yes, yes, uh, all the South African stuff. Yes, well, we're just um, 
uh, starting our Southern African garden. Oh, I was meant to send you an email about dais too, and I forgot. Oh, I'm sorry, John. I, I, I have tracked those down. Oh, you got them? Good. There's a, uh, a very good offer on those. Um, that's the uh, dais um, continifolia, yeah. the pom-pom tree, yes. So I, I just... Um, the, the garden itself is um, going ahead leaps and bounds and is... Um, being directed and built by volunteers and our um, CVGT employment agency and their work for the Dole team. And if you want to see uh, the best collection of eucalypts in Melbourne, that's where I'd go. <laughs> yes, we it's had brilliant, John. Uh, APS uh, marooned a visit last Sunday and they were most impressed with mm, um, what we have. And there's always eucalypts in flower. Mm. Uh, and, and that certainly is our standout uh, collection at the moment. Mm. But we got a grant with the uh, City of Melton Council through Metro Organics of $30,000 last year to return compost from the green bin system back into the earth. And we chose the Melton Botanic Garden to do this back to the earth scheme. Mm. And we have a half hectare area on our landscape design plans for the Southern African section. But also as part of this grant, we've created five test beds from 10 to 50% compost mixed in with the oh. Milton soil. And we've planted the same plants in each one and we'll observe over the next mm, 12 months how they go. Yeah. Oh, that's fantastic. Really good experiment. Yeah. Yeah, and um, so we have been tracking, as Stephen said, we've been tracking down a few of the plants. We've got 29 species in those and we've had um, Marcus Ryan has designed those beds and he's advising us on the plant collection we should hold for our Southern African garden. We've had support from Geelong Botanic Gardens as well, and I was down there with the friends the other day picking up some um, Pelargonium sideroides. Mm -hmm. uh, that was great. And, they, and um, Annette down there is going to um, look to help grow some plants for us and things like that. So a really good cooperation. It's very exciting, but if you were to visit now, you would see most of these 29 species in the five test beds, and they, they do look terrific. Mm, Fabulous. Great. Well, there's an invitation, I take it, John, Absolutely. for us all to go out and have a look. Well, well that's certainly is. Look, we do run um, garden tours for um, various clubs and things. We occasionally have uh, public tours. So on Friday the 29th of May, we have a, a public tour at 9 o'clock for Reconciliation Week, mm. and that focuses on our Indigenous plants because... Probably close to half the area would be under Indigenous plants because we have um, a creek running through and a big lake. So the waterway itself um, dictates that we really need to have Indigenous plants around those. Yes. Mm. Fantastic. Fantastic. I might come and attend on that day, on that 29th of May. I'd love to come for a tour. I've been to visit the garden, John. But, um, oh, wonderful. And I know we filmed it with Gardening Australia last year, but I, uh, I'd love to come on a, an actual tour. I'll get in touch. Oh, yes, lovely. <laughs> <laughs> All right. Okay, thanks, John. Okay, bye. Bye-bye. It it's quite a garden to stand in this incredible Indigenous garden. My friend and I were down there on a lovely rainy day last year and just looking at all the eucalypts and, and then, uh, you know, because it's right across the road from housing development, which is, you know, one of the key things is they want to influence what people are doing 
in their gardens and most of them are just yuccas and pebbles. Uh, (laughs) And they're being watched by this fellow at 11 o'clock in the morning standing in his garage with a can in his hand, sort of staring at us going, what are you doing over there? It's like, we're looking at plants, mate. Come on. What, those ordinary green things? (laughs) They have the most incredible collection. I mean, it was, you know, we were discussing different types of uke that we might put in this garden and we thought, you know, jumped in the car and went down there. They're still quite young, but, you know, there's some incredible plants Mm. down in that garden. I mean, there's nowhere else really that I know you can just go straight down and look at eucalyptus cynandra in flower. You know, three plants. One's got the Mm. lemon flower, I think, a couple of pinks. And, you know, to really see it and go, okay, all right, well, you know, not that you can find the thing if Mm. you want to plant it, (laughs) but, you know, a great... Great garden and in a part of Melbourne that, you know, is seeing so much housing development, mm. I think these guys are just, you know, kicking goals. Mm. To use a sporting analogy, because I know Australians are comfortable with that. <laughs> yes, <laughs> War or sport. <laughs> <laughs> oh, great. We're going to go to uh, Laura in North Melbourne. Good morning, Laura. Good morning. Um, I've got to lift some of my plants because the garden, the built-up garden has sunk. There's... Um, A gardenia, which has been in the ground about a year, Mm. it's still flowering. Do I lift it while it's flowering or wait till it's finished? I'd lift it now. If you're going to have to lift it, I'd do it as soon as possible while the ground's still warm. Right. Um, gardenias don't like wet, cold weather. Uh, and so you, if, it's, if it can be left until the spring, it might be better. But if you're going to do it at all, it's far better to do it now than in the middle of winter. Good. Right. Thank you. Well, that was easy. <laughs> Tick. Uh, yes, I've done that one. Um, all right, have we got any more calls coming in? No, we haven't at the moment. People should ring us up. Actually, Millie, I want to ask you a question. Oh, I, gee. I noticed you've got in front of you there tropiolum tuberosum. Tuberosum. Um, or tuberosus? Tuberosum. Tuberosum. Yeah. Yeah, one of the two. It should be an um, but it could be an uh. It could um, be. I've grown that before. Yes. And I've tried to cook it and it tasted disgusting. I haven't eaten it yet. Ah. So this well, is an edible. Don't microwave it. That's what I did. Well, why would you ever microwave anything to try it? I think we've had because this conversation Because it's, it's simple and quick. I mean, I microwave asparagus, so why couldn't I microwave them? It seemed I'll, like a classic. I'll probably steam it is what yeah. I'll do. Well, when, when I did it, they, they, they had purple juice came out. They look violent and they tasted worse. <laughs> Fantastic. So I, I look want, forward to it. So I want to know how you deal with it when you have a crack at it. I will. It. So, you know, it is, um, it's a climbing nesturtium, essentially, um, mm. of which there's quite a few. Oh, yes. Well, they're all climbing in, in, in one, one way, way or another. Or scrambling. Yeah. Uh, or scrambling. But I have a bit of a thing for them. We've talked about this mm. before, and, and years ago I got tricolour from you because yeah. we were sitting here talking about them. Um, but, um, yeah, I, this one is it's known as mashua, I think, in, in South America. It is mm. one of the, you know, the yam-type things that are eaten really commonly there, ochres and other ones, you know. Yes. You know there's a whole lot of um, plants that are eaten in that way, um, but I, I look. I, I there's something that there's something I like about nasturtiums that I can't explain, um, and so I, I'm growing this as much as as anything because I just really like the plants. I love yeah. the foliage. Um, this has like a, a reasonably typical um, nasturtium foliage, but it has the most incredible flat base to the leaf, which mm. I just think is gorgeous. Um, and it's got little lobey bits as well. Little are, lobey bits, are, mm. you know, on a, it looks like someone snipped the the bottom half mm. of the leaf off almost. Um, mm. And uh, it is a really um, quite a vigorous scrambling plant and climbing plant. I've got it in a mop bucket, growing up some bits of steel that I found. Um, and uh, and the thing that I really like about it too is it use the, uses its leaves and its petioles, its leaf stems, to actually climb. Mm. So that's the part uh, that actually wraps around whatever it uh, is is looking for to, to pull itself up over over. This is a bit ratty because this is the bit that's grown down onto the ground and yep. I've been treading on. So that's the bit <laughs> I sacrificed to bring in here. Um, but look, I've been waiting and waiting and waiting for it to flower and it's finally started to flower and it's just produced the most 
beautiful, elegant, delicate, um, little nasturtium type yes. flowers. They're probably only you know as round as a five cent piece, um, but they have that very elongated. What what's that botanically? That back bit. I, I guess call it's it a, a spur. Is it a spur? Yes. yes. Um, where you know when we were kids, we suck the the nectar out of mm. those on a, on a big nasturtium, um, and they're this beautiful vibrant orange on a really long sort of pinky red stem. Mm. And um, look, I, I, you know, I've been anticipating their flowering for so many months now mm. that it's just one of those things that I, I think is gorgeous. And I will eat them yeah. and I'll divide them up and I will I'll definitely um, be propagating this plant because I think it's pretty gorgeous. Um, I think it could get pretty rampant. It can um, and you do have to watch out for cabbage white butterfly with it. Yeah. Uh, they maybe have a crack a at its foliage. Yeah. Um, in fact, I think they'll go past your average cabbage to get at that nasturtium, but there you go. Yeah, yeah. absolutely. So um, it, it could be quite a rampant plant in the wrong place but you know I'm growing it in a, mm. in a big pot and um, and I think it's just beautiful and as I said I can't really explain what I like about them um, but I just like them and I think in in if mm. I if I was the kind of person that collected in all species of a genus it might be this one yeah well and it's certainly an interesting genus because there's lots of easy ones but there's also some seriously challenging ones some of the high Andean species are so hard to keep I've killed about four mm. over the years that I've had for a little while and I've nursed them and and kept them go for a while, and then suddenly, boom, they're gone. Oh, yeah. blast! You know, and that's happened to me a few times. My blue one is coming back again this year, which I'm very excited about, uh, Tropiola mazurium, um, and it'll sometimes go into a double dormancy, so it won't come up through a whole year, and you think it's gone. Mm. And then the tubers will come up the following year. Yeah. Uh, so there's some serious challenges in that genus, but there's a lot of easygoing plants mm. as well, and 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 most of them are herbaceous perennial climbers which is so precious because you can let them ramble up other plants and they don't do any harm. And, you know, for this time of the year, so this is obviously a summer summer climber and now the tricolour is going to come up, which yeah. is a winter climber. Which is a winter and- one and you can get summer ones. Uh, you, you can actually get climbing nasturtiums flowering most of the year round as well. Mm-hmm. So you can actually have them at different seasons. And so there are those that need their dry summer dormancy. There are others that are summer growing. Mm-hmm. Um, so they're a really diverse group, actually, and some wonderful colours. Yeah. 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 I've got a real fondness for them. I'm coming from South Africa because my um, grandma grew them in, in gardens in South Africa and of course you can eat every part of them you know the little seeds which which form on them which are really peppery and fantastic in adding in salads but um, being where I am in the bush um, I don't want to grow them out in the garden just because um, you know weed potential but um, I grow them in the glasshouse every year and just let them go crazy through the glasshouse and it's mm. fantastic they scramble over the chairs and up some of the benches they don't they don't go everywhere that mm. you know they just take over a nice amount of space and you know there's that lovely sort of nasturtium peppery smell in there and those beautiful bright flowers which and you know and taking through winter it's just fantastic to go out and see them yeah in the, mm. in the glasses yeah well, a humble plant a but a wonderful plant yeah. yeah we've got a question that came in from outside which we'll throw open to everybody to have a say about um apparently josephine from baronia has a grevillea robusta two years old uh and it's got lots of lesions on the stems and she can't see any insect damage uh it was planted in soil previously where pine trees were and can something be done and to it's weeping it? sap which yes. is the key thing i yes. think mm. that means to me that plant is probably not happy or healthy. I don't think mm. it's got anything to do with the pine tree. No, I don't. Uh, the previous either. dwelling. It's just something's gone wrong and it, it sounds like it's got some sort of, um, uh, you know, fungal or bacterial infection. I'd probably whip it out. I yes, would. I'd whip it out. I, it might be a good stick. 
Can I just say, as someone who likes to catch their hands in um, sanders, mm. Grevillea robusta, the silky oak, you know, even though it's a stick and it's a young plant, you might might be some value in that little bit of wood. Um, but, uh, yeah, I would say get it out, um, re-prepare the soil. Yeah. And, and Even and if you can, even if it survives, it's going to be seriously weakened by what's yes. happened. Yeah. And it could take years to make a good tree again. In the meantime, you can have a young one in and growing like mad. And as a big tree, you don't really want a sickly big tree. No. No, yeah. no exactly. Yeah, and they can be beautiful trees. I think oh. Grevillea robusta is one of our great native trees. It's just so beautiful. Do you know, and they do come down all over the city. I see them, you know, there was actually one at the front of Poynton's that was there for many, many years that Warwick planted as a boy and it's gone now and I don't know who, when it came down and I don't know what happened to the timber. Mm. And, I, you know, I've sort of like racked my brain and wish I could, you know, ask him. But, um, but you know, they are a, a, in a big garden. They are an outstanding tree, aren't Beautiful. They? The birds love them. Yeah. Um, I mean, they're a messy tree. They drop a lot of stuff, uh, but that's, that's compost. Yeah. You yeah. know, so I don't sort of panic about that. But I had a neighbour who had a lovely one in his garden and it disappeared and I went and said to him, Ozzy, what have you done? And he said, oh, I was frightened it might burn in a fire. And oh. I thought, for goodness sake, I wish you'd talk to me first. And it, and it had a trunk on it probably, you know, 30 or 40 centimetres in diameter. It was flowering its head off. You don't see them up around Macedon very often. Mm. It was right opposite our place so you could see it and flower from oh. my study window when it was in bloom. Now I'm looking at Ozzy's roof. Yeah. Yes. <laughs> and, you know, it, it it couldn't have been, well, it was as far away from the house as you could get on his block. Uh, it had a clean trunk. Um, I know it dropped leaf litter, which could be perhaps flammable, but... Uh, Gee, you can so, rake that up. Yeah, and it was so sad because it would have just made such a nice tree. And, yes. And, and now it's gone and, mm. and it'll never be there again. Yes. I wonder what happened to that timber. Yeah. Well, I don't know. It just disappeared really fast. <laughs> I wonder fast. if the arborists know. I wonder if the arborists would probably have an awareness when they're taking something down that they know is If they're value. a good arborist, but there's plenty of tree loppers out there, which tree are quite lopper. a that's different a good point. thing. That's a good point. Yes. You know, and they just come in and they'll hack down a tree and that's fine as long as they're insured and they're doing the right thing by the, by the property and the owner, but a lot of them will come in and they'll say to you, oh, of course we can take that tree down. And of course they can. They can take any tree down, but should they yes. is yes. the question yeah. yep. sometimes. Yeah, absolutely. Yep. And a lot of those guys, you know, and I'm, saying, I'm not saying that they're all tarred with the one brush, so to speak, but a lot of them will go out there and they'll tell you that they can take a tree down, but they won't tell you that you shouldn't take it down because then they won't get a job. Mm, and that's right. so some of those, some of the loppers, I think, um, uh, bit bit sus in their in their uh, way they treat mm-hmm. people, mm-hmm. Uh, and they can always look at a tree and say, "Oh, could be dangerous because mm. it's big," mm. and, yeah. uh, and that's sad. That really is. Mm. I need to extort people to make the most of their leaf litter because I've just all all my claret ashes have just almost finished dropping. I've got the most wonderful, wonderful, copious amounts of and leaf litter. there are litter. still people out there burning Don't leaves. burn it's it. A good, it's a good fishing season, isn't it? If you know where to go, you can get <laughs> compost for free from everywhere. Make yeah. the most well, of it. Well, I've seen at least three people around my neighbourhood burning leaves in the last oh, few days. Really? Yeah, around oh, Masson. I, I thought it had stopped. I thought yep. people didn't do it anymore. And there's people out in their gutter with their little piles of leaves burning the damn burning things. Burning leaves in the gutter. It's oh. great. Leave it on the ground. It, yeah. um, it's really good habitat for yes. insects and fungi and all of those or things. Or put it on your garden beds even do. better. Yeah. Yes, yep. Yep. I don't get that. My garden's now becoming almost self-mulching with my yep. deciduous trees exactly. now. And it's fabulous. Okay, yeah. we have got to go. Yeah, we've we've got run go. out it's of time past. for another time. Um, I won't be back for 
another five weeks I'm heading to northern Italy and I'll lots of gardens and I'll be full of all sorts of uh, news after the trip. I'm leaving you in the in the very capable hands of A B. So uh... and, and, and she's looking like she's very capable <laughs> at the moment with that sort of strange grimace. Yeah. <laughs> okay, but uh, tune in again next week at seven thirty. Until then, bye for now. You've been listening to a 3CR podcast produced in the studios of independent community radio station 3CR in Melbourne, Australia. For more information, go to allthews.3cr.org.au.